Magazines and Monsters, Episode 5, Salem's Lot. Ben Mears has been away too long. And now at last, he's come home. The men fought at Valley Forge. Daddy, come back safe. Home to the childhood memories, to the old familiar faces, to a life unmolested by time. And with your saints, let him rejoice in your presence forever. We ask it through Christ our Lord, amen. Home to Salem's Lot, a town too good to be true. What was that? Did you happen to notice the time when the boys left? We shouldn't have gone through the woods. It's a shortcut. They should have been here half an hour ago. Wait, Danny, wait! Something is happening. Something terrible. Henry! Where's Ralph? Ralph. Where's your brother? Once the kid disappears, then this. You're not leaving Salem's lot, are you? I'm not leaving. Don't you understand what's happening? You? Yes, I do. It's in the Marston house. Good evening. I dreamed. You slept there all night? Yeah. A little tired. Didn't sleep much last night. I was dreaming. Somebody out there. Sweet, sweet dreams. I let him in. Oh, something all just happened since... Since I came here. It wasn't a dream. Four times eight. There's a dead man upstairs. Bill! Yeah, you know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Look at me. Ned Tebbett's body has disappeared from the morgue. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Bill! And Susan's in there. Run! No! Stephen King, the best-selling author of Carrie and The Shining, takes you on a startling journey to Salem's Lot. Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange here, back for another recording. Uh, it's been a while since a Magazines and Monsters recording has been out, and <laughs> there's a lot of reasons for that. I procrastinate, and I've got a lot going on too. As you know, my Into the Weird partner and I, Herman, uh, started another uh, venture, an All-Star Squadron podcast. So if you're of the uh, like mind, please check that out. Um, but... I know at some point, too, I wanted to do a lot of comics on magazines and monsters, 
or alternate comics and movies, but when you talk a lot of comics on all your other podcasts, and this is your only outlet for movies, this is kind of what ends up happening. You always just want to talk movies. And, of course, I'm going to be talking about a good one today, and I couldn't think of a better person to bring along for the ride than Herman Lowe. How are you, buddy? Hey, Billy. Great, man. I'm always ready to talk some horror with you. So once again, thanks for having me on Mags and Monsters, one of my favorite blogs. And now, of course, you've transitioned that to a podcast. I couldn't ask for more. <laughs> so I'm ready, ready to talk whatever horror you want, but especially this one that we're going to be discussing today. Mm, yeah. I mean, anytime you talk about a work of Stephen King, you know, I know you're uh, ready and roaring for that one because he's one of your favorite authors. And this is, uh, you know, one of the earlier efforts that of his that were put on film uh, from 1979. And to your uh, amazement, when I talked about it with you, uh, you didn't realize this was a television movie at first, but uh, you saw it as a, a regular full-length movie. So uh, uh, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, we're specifically, of course, going to be talking about one of the greatest horror movies, but definitely the greatest horror television movie, I would say. And that is Stephen King's Salem's Lot. And this was in 1979 that they released it um, as a TV film. Like you mentioned, you saw it in two parts. I probably saw it somewhere around the 80s, uh, renting it on a VHS tape. So that's why I never realized, you know, it was made for TV or that it was a TV movie split into two parts at all. I mean, they didn't even bill it as such on the back of the VHS cover. <laughs> so, you know, but of course, because it's Stephen King and, um, you know, I'm a big fan. I watch all of the adaptations of King's novels and short stories. And there's more, definitely more bad than good. Right, Billy? <laughs> I think we'll all agree on that. <laughs> yeah. But when it's good... <laughs> It's really damn good. And this is one of those examples, you know. So we've got Toby Hooper directing it, you know. And um, back then he was already a name, you know, in the horror industry. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so Toby Hooper's as a director there. You've got a great cast, David Soule, who's better known as a singer. But I think he's got some real serious leading man chops. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a host of others. This movie is a winner. And... I can't believe that they didn't think that this, it would be worthy for um, a cinematic release, you know, on the uh, on the cinema circuit because this is uh, can easily rank up there with the greats, you know, with with stuff like The Shining and The Exorcist and uh, The Omen, I'd say. Uh, but you know, that's just me. Maybe you can see the differences between <laughs> a movie made for TV <laughs> and a movie made for the cinema. I can't. Yeah, I mean, this one is very well made. I mean, in 1979 is when it came out and had an estimated budget of $4 million. So that's nothing to sneeze at for, you know, a budget back in 1979. You know, we had people like John Carpenter making movies for a million dollars. So, you know, and those were studio, you know, movies released in a theater, not television movies. So that's pretty darn good. Warner Brothers TV, you know, putting a $4 million budget into a television movie (laughs) yeah 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 exactly so you know like you say it is a big deal and that's why the end product is so so classy i would say i mean that's not a good way to describe a movie about gore and blood and 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 horror (laughs) but i would say this is one of the classier horror movies because of the cinematography because of the 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 idyllic rural setting uh which which harkens back to those old hammer movies you know um folk horror and stuff like that but also because mm-hmm. of the quality of the acting. I couldn't see, you know, a lot of guys, you know, um, 
overreaching or a lot of people being too dramatic or, you know, uh, not looking genuine. I, even though the, the, the rest of the cast is lesser well-known than the, the, the stars of the cast, they did a great job. So, you know, well-casted, well-directed, and beautiful cinematography. And, of course, you have that great scary beat running right through the entire movie, which they maintain remarkably well. You never have a lull in that uh, scary tempo, right, Billy? Because of that, I'd say this movie ranks up there with one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Yeah, for me, it's definitely my favorite uh, top television horror movie. There's another one I like a lot from the early 80s, but you and I might talk about that with a uh, third cohort in the future, so I don't want to give that one away. But uh, this one is definitely one that I must not have seen this. They must have re-aired this a couple years after it came out because I was four years old in 1979. So there's no way my mom was letting me watch this at four years old. So I must have seen this in like a re-release a couple years later or something like that. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't remember exactly, you know, when I saw this movie, but I definitely rented it on VHS because of um, the fact, like I said, it's Stephen King, but also the cover, right? Mm -hmm. The cover to the VHS copy is fantastic. It's striking. It's... um, the main horror antagonist Barlow, the vampire, mm-hmm. who's very similar in looks to um, Max Schreck's uh, Nosferatu from the nineteen, the, yep. the early nineteen twenties or the late nineteen twenties, I should say, the the German yeah. film. He he's mm-hmm. I think he's even based off of that. He's modeled off of Max Schreck. Yep. So mm-hmm. you know that you've got the striking image of him looming shadow like, but with the moon at his back illuminating his bald head. And uh, with his fangs being prominently displayed, looming over the town of Salem's Lot, which is this in this case on the cover uh, portrayed, the town is being uh, represented by the Marston House, which is the focal point of all evil in this story. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to have a great haunted house, right? <laughs> Coupled with vampirism, oh, yeah. it's it's a winner. So you know that cover drew me to it, and and even the cover to Salem's Lot Two, which was the second TV film released. Um, that I, I remember they stood, they were right next to each other on the shelf, you know, in the mm-hmm. DVD shop. But I ended up, of, of course, going for the first one. Second one's not that good, but it's, it's not bad either. But, of course, the first one is the, you know, the, the tour de force here. So, you know, because of that cover, I rented it too. It's not just because I knew it was based off of a Stephen King property. I had, though, read the book before I saw the movie for the first time. In fact, Salem Slot was one of the first Stephen King books I read. So, you know, Billy, I, I had high expectations, yeah. but they were met. Even though there were significant changes, I mm-hmm. was creeped out. I, I was even more creeped out by my, you know, by, by viewing this movie than what I saw in my imagination from reading the book. <laughs> so that's yeah. that's very rare. Yeah, we're going to talk about those differences between the book and the movie after we get through, you know, talking about the movie. Um, we're going to talk about it in two parts because, again, it's it was shown over two nights uh, on television so it's a bit longer of a movie so we're going to break it up into two parts just so it's not one long 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 synopsis i'll do part one you're going to do part two and we're going to take a break in the middle to talk about part one and then talk about part two and basically the whole the whole thing uh after you're done with your synopsis for part two and then you know later on we'll get to the differences between the book and the movie but you had already mentioned uh you know one of the people in the movie you know the the main character, David Soul, uh, he plays uh, Ben Mears, who's a writer, and we know they're always uh, 
good to use uh, <laughs> as uh, characters in movies as well. They make some very interesting people. <laughs> Especially in Stephen King stories and movies, he, he loves to have a main character as a writer because he himself is a writer. So this is sort of like him writing himself in the story or an <laughs> aspect that he of himself that or or, or possibly he's projecting what he wants to be like in real life, you know? So this mm-hmm. is not really him. I mean, the, the character of Ben Mears is totally different from, from Stephen King in real life. <laughs> yeah. But um, my point is, yeah, writers, like you say, are great protagonists um, because they're very introspective. They're usually very intelligent. So you know that they can get to be the hero based off of their intelligence and their knowledge. You know, they can bring knowledge to the table. Ben, though, does not always serve that function in this story, as we'll talk about, you know, as we'll progress through the story. He's more like a, the right man at the right place kind of time, you know, and then he, he has to gather people around him, sort of. Um, yeah. yeah, so he's sort of the leader of a de facto group of vampire hunters, which is a trope, <laughs> Billy, that goes back all the way to, you know, the novel Dracula, which is, in fact, mm-hmm. what uh, Stephen King drew on for inspiration for the, for the story of Salem Slot. That and the EC comics, um, like, you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt and um, Vault of Fear and Vault of Horror, yes. But um, basically, he wanted to portray, uh, uh, you know, a rural setting in America, but but with an old world vampire entering the new world and seeing how that would impact the lives of these townsfolk. And I think they they did that really well in the in the film. You know, that's that's the central huh? part of the story is the, the, the townsfolk and the town. I mean, that's why the name of the, the film is Salem's Lot and the name of the book. It's not really about the, the antagonist and the protagonist. It's about the town and the people and how they're reacting to this horror that's introduced into their lives. Yeah, this movie is like a haunted house movie, a vampire movie. It's a, a couple of things rolled into one here. But yeah, David Soul, I like him in this movie quite a bit. You know, everybody in the states probably knows him more as uh, you know from Starsky and Hutch, the yeah. buddy cop. Show. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, that was pretty pretty popular there for a while. But uh, and then another big time actor, even I would say overall, you know, bigger, much bigger name than David Soul is uh, James Mason. You know, he's been around a long time. Yeah. Very very good actor. He plays Richard K. Straker, who's kind of the the front man for the vampire in this movie. That's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, uh, James Mason. Uh, gives a very creepy and eerie performance um mm. you know and um he's uh you know normally associated with well he, he did uh, quite a few american films but he did a lot of british films as well and yeah. uh his his face is so recognizable right but here he's playing an older man he was an older man at the time obviously too but um yeah he's more you know when i think of james mason i think of his you know movies in black and white <laughs> you know so yeah but mm-hmm. here he's 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 in the later part of his career and still delivering a striking performance as Straker, this the servant of the vampire Barlow. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Billy, every good vampire needs to have a henchman. <laughs> a Renfield, yep. Absolutely. A Renfield, like that's right. Yeah. yeah, they based, you know, like I said, Stephen King about basing, you know, the book off of a few things and then the screenwriters, you know, that wrote the you know, the the dialogue and everything the, the screenplay for the television movie here like you said they used Nosferatu as well because they thought you know they they didn't want to try to use any kind of a a Lugosi type vampire they thought that was very dated and then even a Christopher Lee or a Frank Langella whatever like they didn't want it to be they wanted something just straight up scary and creepy like there's no dialogue 
and I think they made a really good choice in going the way they went with uh, Mr. Barlow. So That's right. That was a good one. No, you're right. The writers are a lot to be credited for here, the screenplay writers. In fact, Stephen King had a hand in um, uh, handling the screenplay, but I think the, the guy that brought it to the fore was Paul Manesh. You know, he was yeah. the screenwriter here, but he stuck very closely to uh, the major plot points in the novel. But but obviously, mm-hmm. because this is a huge novel that you have to compress into three hours, they had to yeah. make some significant changes. But all of those changes work, Billy. That's why this movie is great. Uh, aside from the novel being great on its own, this movie can, can be viewed as a standalone product, which is not a failure in an attempt to, you know, bring a, a novel to the screen. I think it's it's highly successful, so we can get into the synopsis, Billy. I mean, um, uh, this there might be lots of listeners who who've never read the novel, but they've seen the movie, or who've read the novel and seen the movie both. I don't know, uh, but if you haven't seen this movie, do so. You know, before listening further, because this is worth it. This is a great watch, especially oh, yeah. late yeah, at def- night. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean. There were a couple other people here I wanted to quick mention. Lance Kerwin plays Mark Petrie. Mm. He's like a, he's like the, the the kid in the movie. Like, what do you, would you say? He is like a junior high school age kid. Yeah, he's junior maybe. high school aged. Maybe in the, in the novel he was uh, fourteen. Here he's yeah. more. He, he looks like a fourteen year old, but he's yeah. He's 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 sort of had a growth spurt compared to his uh, contemporaries because he's much taller and bigger than his friends. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. but yeah, and he, then you have. Uh, Bonnie Bonnie Bedelia, who is Susan Norton, which ends up being David Soul, you know, uh, his character Ben Mears' girlfriend in the movie, uh, very a good actress, a very attractive lady too. She makes a, a good uh, leading lady here for this movie. And then the guy that played the character Jason Burke, his name is Lou Ayers. I can't remember where else I've seen him before, but he's another one of those faces that you'll recognize when you see his face and think, yeah, I've seen him in. Like I said, probably somewhere older black and white TV uh, is where you would see his face. You know, maybe even some westerns and stuff like that. In the, yeah, in the I, I I know him too. I can't remember though where I saw him before uh, Lou Burke, but it, yeah, he's he's quite well known. Um, you know, he's he's got a huge filmography though. You know, so yeah. um, uh, this is just from my research on on stuff like Wikipedia and IMDb. Mm-hmm. So, but I didn't mm-hmm. jot down any significant roles I know him in. But like you say, he's he's well known. Yeah, I think in late twenties he started acting in. So that'll just wow. tell you what kind of a catalog he has. Yeah, Whoa. about it. And then uh, my favorite character of the entire film, uh, actress Julie Cobb plays Boom Boom Bonnie. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll She's get cute. into a little. Bit. A little more about her later on. Yeah, very, very attractive lady. Um, and then good old Elisha Cook Jr., who's been in everything from horror movies and Bogart movies and Star Trek. Uh, he plays Gordon Weasel Phillips. So that's <laughs> right. A couple other people there. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Fred Willard. <laughs> that guy. Oh, yeah. He plays Larry Crockett, the real estate man. He is just, he's a. A bigger deal in the first half of the movie, but the second half he kind of falls off. And we'll exactly, why, but dude, he's he's a, crazy. He's crazy. We've <laughs> seen him in so many roles. Um, you know, mostly TV, right, Billy? But oh, okay, this is yeah, a TV movie. A lot of TV. But he's done a lot of TV shows. And then um, I don't know if you, if I mean, if this guy uh, was on your radar, but I saw him in lots of stuff as a kid. Kid Jeffrey Lewis as Mike Ryerson, 
the grave digger. Oh yeah, yeah. He's yep. he's mm-hmm. been around. He's got a very striking face. You know, he's got these blue eyes yep. and. You know, he's mm-hmm. always looking like he's in a permanent state of shock or something, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, he's in it. Um, he's had, like, lots of acting credits credits to mm-hmm. his name, too, you know? But um, I think this is probably his best, you know, um, or most well-known role. Um, so, yeah, this cast is laden with, with people who are interesting mm-hmm. and uh, who bring... Like I said in the beginning, their acting uh, skills are on full display right Billy and they bring everything oh, yeah. uh, that they have to to the table so yeah 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 for sure okay I'll just get right into the synopsis for part one here all right so like I said Salem's Lot from 1979 the miniseries uh, it was in two parts uh, on November 17th and then one week later on November 24th which you and I had <laughs> talked about off mic, uh, which is kind of funny. It's you'd think it would be around Halloween. Uh, no, it was right around Thanksgiving. So, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving! You know, here's a vampire <laughs> movie. <laughs> oh yeah, Hilarious. that's weird. So, that's okay. weird. <laughs> Dude, that is what really timing? Weird. Like, yeah, not Halloween or just you know uh, summer. Even you think in the middle of summer or something like that. You know, it's really hot out. Too hot yeah. out to go outside. Let's just watch some TV and settle in for a nice horror. <laughs> No, let's sit down at Thanksgiving and watch a horror movie. That's crazy, man. I don't know what the reasoning was behind that, but yeah, it was done, and that's what we got. That's what you guys got. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there must have been a lot of post-production work because I think it wrapped late August of that year. So you figure it took more than two months after it wrapped filming to get it out. And for a TV movie, you know, something, a TV production, that seems like a little bit longer than what you would usually see. So they must have... You know, like we said, the quality of this movie is very, very high for television. So they must have took their time to really get everything right. And I think they did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. Okay. I'll just fire off with part one here. Excellent. The film opens with a man and a boy in a church in Guatemala. They're praying at the altar. Then they fill up some bottles with holy water. One of the bottles begins to glow and they both remark, they've found us. Rewind two years earlier to Salem's Lot, Maine, as writer Ben Mears stares at a sinister-looking house on a hill. An even more sinister man comes out of the house, stares at Mears, and then drives off. Needing a place to stay, Ben heads into town to Crockett Realty. Larry Crockett and Boom Boom Bonnie tell him to try (laughs) Eva Miller's boarding house. After checking in, we switch back to Larry Crockett as he walks next door to an antique shop that's preparing to open soon. Inside, he meets with a Mr. Straker, the sinister-looking fellow that Ben saw come out of the Marston house on the hill. Next, we see Ben go for a walk at a nearby park. There, he meets Susan Norton, an art teacher at the local elementary school. They hit it off immediately and decide to go out to dinner later. Before that, though, we see Ben once again staring at the Marston house. You can see see an eerie feeling come over him as he looks at a lit window in the house. He swivels around and gets the life scared out of him by none other than Mr. Straker. He says good evening and then proceeds to the house. Ben is sweating bullets at this point, but jumps in his Jeep and heads out to meet Susan for dinner. As Larry Crockett is closing up his office, he and Boom Boom Bonnie make plans for tomorrow night for some extracurricular activities after her husband Cully leaves for work. Meanwhile, in the alleyway, Weasel Phillips, the local drunk, is spying on the situation. 
The local police chief surprises him and then asks him to keep an eye on Ben as he's an outsider. As Ben is driving to Susan's house, he passes a graveyard and the caretaker, Mike Ryerson, is there with his dog. Over at Susan's house, her and her parents have dinner with Ben. They seem to like him, especially her dad. Over at the boarding house, Weasel is snooping in Ben's room. Eva interrupts him, but then the two read some of his work. His new book is about the Marston house and the town's history of creepy goings-on has both of them on edge. Ben and Susan then head out after dinner and decide to go to the lake to make out. (laughs) (laughs) The following day, (laughs) Ben is trying to write, but it's going slowly. He stares out of his window at the apartment, which seems to emit some kind of evil energy when he stares at the house. Once again, Mr. Straker leaves the house, and Ben can feel that something isn't quite right about this man. Over at Crockett Realty, Larry gets a call from Straker and heads over to assist him. Straker asks him to get two men and a delivery truck to go to Portland to make a pickup for him. Crockett inquires about Straker's absent partner, Mr. Barlow, but Straker tells him not to worry that he'll be arriving soon. At the local school, the students are practicing for the yearly play. Ben shows up to meet up with his old school teacher, Jason Burke. The two talk and then make plans to have some dinner and talk about lost time. Over at the graveyard, Cully enlists Mike Ryerson and another guy to go to Portland and make the pickup for Straker because he has other plans. Susan is leaving school for the day and gets harassed by her ex-boyfriend, Ned Tebbets. She tells him to get lost, and he doesn't like it. Cully then heads out with his truck to go meet up with Mike and Ned. He then makes his way back home. Speaking of back home, (laughs) there we see Boom Boom Bonnie calling Larry to come over for a rendezvous. At a local restaurant, Ben and Jason have dinner and talk about old times. Jason inquires about his new book he's writing, and the two discuss the Marston house and the ominous shadow it casts over Salem's lot. At the dock in Portland, Mike and Ned remark about the box they're picking up that it feels very cold. They load the crate and take off for home. As they drive back to town, the crate seems to be emitting even more colder temperatures and moving towards the front of the truck on its own. Larry comes over for some fun with Bonnie, but gets interrupted by Cully, who's brandishing a shotgun. He threatens Larry, who then runs out of the house in his underwear, but right into a ghastly hand. (laughs) Over, (laughs) Over at Mark Petrie's house, He and the Glick boys are rehearsing for the pageant, but then the Glick boys get called home by their mother. On their way, Danny leaves Ralphie, who's feeling as if something or someone is creeping around. He's then accosted by Straker. Mike and Ned reach the Marston house to deliver the crate, but when they try to open it, they hear a noise upstairs and get scared and run away. Mike then returns to the graveyard and sees his dog has been murdered. Back at the Marston house, Straker brings Ralphie's unconscious body inside and places it by the crate. Ben and Susan are back at the lake for another makeout session, and they hear a car nearby. When Ben goes to investigate, he sees Larry Crockett in the driver's seat of the car, dead. The police show up and question Ben and Susan. Neither of them can tell the police anything, but urge Ben to not leave town. Ben takes Susan home and her father, Bill, is heading out to the hospital because Danny Glick has collapsed. Ben remarks that he thinks his presence in Salem's lot has activated some evil in the town. The following day, the police and some volunteers search for Ralphie Glick. 
Ben finds a piece of black cloth and remarks to the police that Straker always wears a black suit. The police chief then goes to question Straker at the antique shop, but he evades most of the questions. The chief does ask to see his black suits, though, as he's under suspicion. That night, over at the hospital, Danny Glick is sleeping, but awakens when he hears a noise at the window. We see a fog-shrouded figure scratching at it. The room is not on the first floor. Danny goes to the window in a trance-like state, opens it, and is then bitten on the neck by what appears to be his brother, who has now become a vampire. The following morning, a nurse comes to the room and makes a grisly discovery. All right, Herman, what'd you think about that? Wow. Okay, buddy. First off, let me compliment you on that summary. Very detailed, uh, but not boring in the least. Riveting. <laughs> I was on the edge of my yeah, it's seat. Not, it's, it's tough, man. It's tough. It's tough to do it without... You don't want to give stuff away. Mm, mm, mm. But you want to get pretty specific about certain people in here, but we can dig into that more now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a couple of fantastic scenes. We'll start from the beginning. Obviously, this mm-hmm. uh, goes back to what I was saying first, is that Ben, you know, is the right man who arrives in Salem's Lot at the right time, just as this mm-hmm. evil is about to um, be born in the town or reborn in the town. Uh, because yeah. as we learn, uh, you know, Ben, he was a resident from uh, of the town when he was a kid. <laughs> and he yeah. has a connection to the Marston house uh, because when he was a kid, he, he entered the house on a dare. And, you know, he was scared to death. He thought he saw some ghosts in there. And mm-hmm. he, throughout the novel, he, you know, as he speaks to people like, um, you know, Burke and to... Um, uh, you know Susan who's going to become his girlfriend who already at this point in time is sort of his girlfriend Um, you know it it comes out that he uh, starts to believe that that was not just a delusion that that was true he truly does believe that there's evil in the Marston house and it seems that there's this theme where I believe evil attracts evil because uh, Mm -hmm. the folks that ended up buying the Marston house which we learned from Larry Crockett are these two antique dealers from Europe Mr. Barlow and Mr. Straker, and they've opened up this antique store in the town, and it's uh, still a bit a ways away in the beginning, in the first part of the movie from opening, but at the end of the first section, they've opened, and, uh, well, sort of, right? It's not the opening day yet, but, um, you know, Straker's gotten any, everything ready, and he admits Just people about. to the shop, yeah, like, for instance, the, the, the sheriff, he admits him to the shop, mm-hmm. and um, whenever I think of the sheriff, actually, I think of uh, Baron Harkonnen, uh, Kenneth McKillen, he's the guy who played Baron Harkonnen in the David Lynch Dune movie, right, Billy? I oh, should have right, mentioned yeah. that when we talked about yep. the cast. But <laughs> but he's not really a famous, you know, actor or he hasn't shown up in a lot of stuff. But you could right off immediately see this is Baron Harkonnen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he's a despicable kind of guy, too. I mean, he orders one of the townsfolk, a drunk old weasel, like you mentioned, to spy on Ben. Jeez, just because Ben's a stranger to town? Damn, that's mm-hmm. crazy. And, you know, then yeah. uh, to get back to the, the the scenes that I was talking about, the striking scenes in the in the novel, the, the best one for me in this, this first part is, of course, well, it's a twofer. They're neck and neck where um, Mike Ryerson and Ned have to deliver the box. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they pick it up at the docks. They take it to back to Salem's Lot. They have to put it in the cellar. And then they have this pervasive uh, feeling of fear which is slowly eroding their their self-confidence and their you know their moods they you can you can feel this building because whatever's in this box is is ready to get out even though they don't know that there's something living in this box they just feel this unnatural cold and because of that fear 
you know, you kind of watch this and, and even in the novel you read this scene and you, you feel like you're one of them. You're right there with them experiencing this fear. And then when they eventually get this heavy box down into the cellar, they 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 hear like a noise or something and they bolt they just sprint for it and then you know they they realize they forgot the the, the locks and the chains and the keys down there which they were supposed to to put it in you know as uh, Straker requested well as Larry Crockett asked of them to do you know which is following yeah. Straker's orders and then they had to go back and they just ended up throwing it back into the cellar and like closing the door without locking the cellar door so, you know, you have uh, that great scene of feeling this rising terror, um, you know, from the point of view of these two delivery men. And then the other scene, of course, Billy, I'm going to let you speak on that scene. That's one of the classic scenes in the movie, but tied with this first scene I mentioned, which which is Larry Crockett and Bonnie getting caught by her husband, Cully. <laughs> you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this oh. movie, they did a great job of using part one, or, you know, if you saw it all as one piece, using the first half of this movie to kind of lull you into a sense of, you know, oh, yes, we know there's something, you know, uh, not good about this, like, haunted or evil-looking house, but, you know, there's nothing really scary here yet. And they use, you know, some comedy <laughs> to uh, kind of keep you in a light mood and lulled to sleep before the second half and things really get crazy. And, yeah, <laughs> Boom Boom Bonnie is the secretary for Larry Crockett at the realty place in town, and her husband is Cully Sawyer, who has like a, I guess like a delivery business, you would say. He almost seems like a Sanford and Son type junk dealer type guy, but I guess it's just more of a, he has a truck for rent, you know, and he, he makes pickups and deliveries for stuff, you know, for businesses and people in town. And so, of course, that requires him to be out of town for hours on end, if not, you know, like half a day. Yeah. So I guess he's not, you know, he's not enough for Bonnie. So she uh, enlists uh, Larry, her boss at work, to, uh, to fill the gap. When, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when Cully's not around. So she calls him over to the house and they're in bed, you know, ready to, to get it on. And <laughs> Cully busts in the door with a shotgun and scares the crap out of both of them. Yeah. And threatens Larry with the shotgun, like has him hold the barrel right in front of his face. And then he it forces him to swallow the barrel, right, Billy, at one point in time. Yeah. yeah. And then he doesn't have any bullets in the gun, though, but he still pulls the trigger and then all the snap snap because it's a double barreled shotgun yeah that sends larry out the door yeah it's crazy into, you know later we find out the hand of mr barlow <laughs> yeah exactly man this this is just uh it's a crazy scene it's funny but it's also terrifying because <laughs> larry's gonna get his head blown off or at least we think that and then you know cully plays this <laughs> cruel joke on him and then which obviously larry deserved you know, and then yeah, yeah, he yeah. runs oh, yeah. out in terror <laughs> straight into Barlow, <laughs> who immediately. Which, you know, that's a good scene, too. You know, we, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good scary. scene, too, because you really don't see Barlow. You really just see his hand and his arm and, like, pop up right in front of Larry's face like he's going to tear his face off. But then the scene cuts yeah. to, I think it cuts up to uh, Ben and Susan up at the lake making out, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. And then, uh, you know, um, yeah, it's it's just a, it's a great bit of um, you know foreshadowing of what's to come because the terror is just mm -hmm. going to escalate from from here on in, right? Uh, Billy? Oh yeah. And oh, uh, eventually, Ben and Susan end up uh, you know finding um, you know Larry in his car, you know mm -hmm. up up there. But we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, you know that the lake seems to be <laughs> you know <laughs> the reason why 
um, Susan and Ben are in the right place at the right time. It's actually the wrong place in the right time if you think of, if you think about it from Susan's dad perspective, because he in fact asks Ben, yeah. "Could you be more discreet with my daughter? You know, you were <laughs> up at the lake. Everybody knows about it, Ben." <laughs> yeah, it's like one of these deals where it's a small town. Yeah. What does it say the population is on the way into town? Like a thousand. Two thousand. Yeah, thousand people. Or something two thousand like so or something. That. Yeah. yeah, that that's a, a very small town. I mean, it's not super yeah. out there like 500 people but still it's a pretty small town so everybody is in everyone else's business that's so, right so <laughs> the, the word's been out already with one night up at the lake that oh yeah they were up there last night everybody seems to know yeah, this town about exactly it. <laughs> that's why it makes sense that you know the, the cop the scumbag <laughs> sheriff would order weasel weasel craig the town drunk to you know spy <laughs> On Ben, and and yeah. in fact, he he's in a good position to do that because he stays at the boarding house that Ben lodges at, right? Billy Eva Miller's yep. Uh, yep. boarding house, and it turns out boarding that Eva house. Miller, Eva Miller, and Weasel Craig, they used to have a you know a relationship going, but uh -huh. um, you know now she just um, has pity on him because he's an alcoholic and just lets him stay for free, you know, for obviously doing some um, you know chores around the place, but. You know, um, yeah. that's why he's there and he can just walk into the room and just, you know, snoop through Ben's journal yeah. and his, his writings. <laughs> and then that, that goes back to the reason why Ben's there, right, Billy? Like you mentioned in your synopsis, yeah. he wants to write a novel based upon the Marston house because the Marston house has been haunting him since he was a kid. And he ha he's yeah. had two moderately successful novels before, you know, one called Conway's Daughter and one called Air Dance. And I think that's the novel that Susan was reading in the park, you know, um, yeah. Air Dance. When the second one, yeah, the second one, yeah, when she met him in the park. And uh, man, old uh, David Soul, you know, Ben Mears here, he's bold, he's confident. He sees a, a young yeah. girl, young pretty teacher, reading his novel, and he thinks, "Hey, <laughs> I'm gonna chat her up." And ask her out, yeah. <laughs> and he did immediately, right? <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, but he's quite a, a, a handsome guy. So she obviously Absolutely. ended up saying yes she was also enamored by him as a writer even though she admitted she's not really that into his novels <laughs> she couldn't even remember the name of the first book <laughs> yeah oh i forgot the name of the first one sorry <laughs> that's all right it wasn't very good <laughs> he's self-deprecating but you know in a suave way you know um yeah. so um you know they end up uh, having their first date at susan's home which is i don't know about you Billy, but that's weird man <laughs> That's tough. Oh, that's, yeah, not only is it weird, that's tough. I wouldn't want to walk into that situation. So maybe he's just trying to prove to her that he's got big balls or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, he got a good meal out of it. And then he got to hit it off with her dad, who's the town doctor, uh, Dr. Yeah. Norton. And he plays a major role in in the later part of the, you know, in the let's say the second half, which is uh, the second part yeah. of the TV movie, part two. I should have mentioned him. Yeah, Bill, Dr. Bill Norton is played by Ed Flanders. He's another guy, too, where you'd see him in bit parts on television shows a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Minor roles, but uh, Good job. recognizable face. Yeah, a, a very steady mm -hmm. actor, very stable, and very, you know, um, he's got a good delivery. I really enjoyed yeah. him in this role because he's sort of like, yeah, since he's the doctor, he's the mm -hmm. scientist, uh, you know, uh, among the vampire hunters, and he's also the most oh, yeah. incredulous. You know, he doesn't believe... Uh, what is presented to him even though the evidence is there but then later on when he actually has an encounter we'll talk about that in the second part he does <laughs> end up becoming 100% yeah. committed to the cause which is to 
you know, get rid yeah. of the vampires in the town. But, you know, in this very early part, Billy, he's firmly still just feeling Ben out, seeing if this guy's good for his daughter, just like a, a normal dad would do. And uh, But he, he realizes he, he likes this guy because Ben's a no-nonsense type and the doctor's the same. They they share that, you know. And um, yeah. even, even oh, yeah. you know, like you said, the mom, um, Mrs. Norton, she, she um, sort of gloms onto Ben a little, which is not what happened in the novel at all. In the novel, she's act- she actually actively hates him. But there yeah. is this small scene where she asks um, <laughs> Susan, like, what's his third, no- what, what's he writing about? And she says, oh, it's like some kind of a, a there, or, or what was in his one novel? And then Susan says something, oh, there's like a prison rape scene or something. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and she's shocked. <laughs> but obviously Susan just did that to provoke her mom a bit. It's not, a major yeah, plot the, point yeah, like the, it is in the book yeah yeah the tv show she just said what's his book about that you're reading and she's like it's about two men and his her mother's <laughs> like what like she doesn't know so i don't know if they're trying to go for a little shock value you figure it was 1979 and if you were going to say there was a, a writer and he was writing about you know whether it was just two men that were just a gay romance like said, yeah a, a gay romance or something then the mother's like what yeah you know so that i think she just did that just the just to give her mother a hard time, yeah. Too, you know what I mean. Just, just to show that, shock her a bit. yeah. This to show <laughs> that she's more hip, more with the times than her mom. But you know, they end up, yep. you know, hitting it off with Ben, and that you know works because Ben can then later on um, solicit their help. In fact, Susan is more disbelieving of what's happening in the town than her dad if, uh, eventually, right, Billy? So even though yeah. Ben has Susan's ear, there's this brief period where Susan goes for a job interview in an adjacent town. Or actually, it's not Boston. in the Jason Town. It's in Boston. It's in a city, right? What am yeah. I saying? So she went south, yeah, south yeah. to Boston. Yeah. So, you know, because of that, um, she's had like maybe 48 hours where she was not privy to the events that then occurred. So maybe she would have been more believing. Maybe she would have been more apt to accept what happened to the town. But when she returns after those 48 hours, she's not clued in to what happened. She just knows Ben is going crazy her dad's going crazy the whole town's going nuts she she's thinking there's a rational explanation so you know she's the only one of the crew who sort of plays who doesn't you know form a part of the the initial vampire hunting uh, team here the companions as we might call them because she's playing the role of let's say mina harker uh, or mm-hmm. mina murray as she was known before her wedding to jonathan harker in the dracula tale but she doesn't become a part of the hunt, um, sort of. Not not like like the novel Dracula, where where at the end, you know, Mina actively, you know, sort of uh, helps them to, uh, you know, hunt down the count based on her hunt link with him. Dracula. Here it's totally different. Here she's used as a pawn, which could arguably also be what yeah. Dracula used Mina for. But you know, she's definitely the Mina-like character. But Stephen King sort of inverts mm-hmm. her role in the movie and in the plot and we'll get to that later but my point is uh, right from this very first part of the movie uh, Ben is establishing the cast of characters unknowingly you know he's establishing the cast of characters that will eventually you know end up um, having a confrontation with the evil in the town yeah and I mean this is a good part one because you you know between the, the material from King's novel and like you said the screenwriters and just the production value of this, you know, this was a good first part that you definitely would want to watch. Like I would argue 
the overwhelming majority of people that watched part one, they were watching part two because, you know, the definitely. characters were likable or they were interesting. So <clears throat> you were definitely tuning into the second part. And it leaves you on a great cliffhanger, right, Billy, with the nurse yeah. finding Danny dead. Now let's get to the scariest scene of this first part of the movie. It could mm. could be argued by many, and it and in fact it is argued by many, to be the scariest scene in the movie, although I don't mm-hmm. necessarily agree, but it's re- really up there. It's when, yeah. okay, first off, uh, let, let's lead up to the scene, right, Billy? You have um, Ralphie and Danny going home from Mark Petrie's house, their friend. They've just checked out his monster collection. You know, he's Mark Petrie is the, uh, uh, well, he's the main child antagonist, uh, protagonist in the movie. Yeah. Um, but right from the beginning, we there's hints of it, but we don't know yet how important he'll become. We don't know that he's going to be one of the the two only two survivors right we don't know that yet <laughs> but um you know uh, ralph and danny glick ralphie and danny glick they're over there at his house ralphie's much younger than his brother danny and uh you know um, they're taken by um you know mark's monster collection he has these uh, you know little figurines that he paints of dracula and the wolfman and the mummy and the frankenstein monster mm-hmm. and he puts them in these little diorama sets and he's got posters mm-hmm. on the wall and and books about monsters and then, um, you know, in the novel, they're much more, you know, impressed by this collection. In the movie, Danny sort of says, why are you into this weird stuff, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but then eventually Danny and Ralphie have to go home. Their mom calls her. And they have to walk uh, this forested path between um, the, you know, the house of Mark, uh, the Petries, and uh, yeah. the house of the Glicks. So they walk through this forested path and there's some sinister s- sounds going on because it's, it's uh, what, 8 o'clock at night, 7.30 at night. It's already dark. Yeah, and yeah. Now, now we realize the true uh, reason why Straker could not meet the two delivery me- uh, men at the dock, right? He couldn't meet Ned and, and Mike Ryerson at the dock because um, he did have prior business, but he lied to Larry Crockett. It wasn't in, an, mm-hmm. in another town. It was, in fact... He, he was in this uh, forested area, this forested glade or whatever you would call it, this bit of the woods between separating mm-hmm. these two parts of the neighborhood. And yeah. it, in fact, is like you mentioned in your synopsis, it's Straker who then ambushes the boys. Mm-hmm. Now he captures Ralphie, he kidnaps him, but he does something to Danny Glick too. It might have just have been shock, but I'm thinking he must have, well, based on, on the movie, the way that Danny arrived back at back at his home, he must have struck him or something or, or hypnotized mm-hmm. him with some trick his master taught him because he kidnaps Ralphie in a very scary, you know, uh, jump scare um, in the movie, right, Billy, where this dark shadow just looms up in front of them. Um, And I think um, then Danny stumbles back home after being an hour or two hours late and he's uh, bruised and battered and he's out of it. He's in shock and he can't remember what happened. Uh And that part's already damn scary because, you know, Billy, you and I were both parents. Just think... How, how you would oh, feel yeah. watching oh. this once you are a parent and you you realize this could happen to your child. And then, you know, Ralphie's the youngest of the two, so that makes it extra scary. And then he's offered yeah. up to this thing in the crate by Straker, who walks down into the basement and, um, you know, puts <laughs> Danny's body down on the table. Now, at this time, Billy... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this this is this is basically a, a welcome home snack or something you know the the equivalent of that but we yeah, see you that know, you and I if we want a snack we go to the store and buy like you know some soda or pop and like Doritos and Drinker <laughs> brings home like you know a, a 10-year-old boy damn exactly <laughs> Mr. Barlow 
Exactly, and yeah. you know uh, when when he brings him down into the the basement, we see that this crate has been ripped open. Whatever's in there exploded out of it. Yeah, it's been shattered. The mm-hmm. you know boards and planks and wood you know splinters are all over the place. So this thing that was in there was incredibly powerful. It's gone. It's 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 not there at the moment, but it's gonna come back. And Straker looks approvingly at the scene as he lays the boy wrapped in. A black uh, garbage bag, I would say. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that is because it seems very thick. Yeah, you know damn I mean? thick. It even seems thicker than a bag. Yeah, it's not a body bag because a body bag has the zipper, but it's definitely some heavy-duty garbage bag um, yeah. that he probably prepared just for this moment. You know, they've probably done this in dozens of towns before. You know, and um, probably not in the states though. It might have been in Europe because when the police chief eventually does the background check on them he finds that they're clean they they're from europe you know they don't have any criminal records no no sinister goings on in their past but of course they could have faked all of that but they've probably done this Mm -hmm. before right billy in many little small towns and then you know straker leaves he goes up into the house and then thankfully we don't see what happens to poor ralphie (laughs) because it might have been horrible now, Billy, I will mention this. Uh, this is actually something I should leave for later. But this is one of the scenes that scared me. But the novel was scarier in this scene. I'll tell you why later when we talk about okay. the differences. But this scene was already damn scary yeah. because a kid's been kidnapped. Oh, yeah. And then we get the mm-hmm. scariest scene. Obviously, Ralphie's then vampirized, you know, by mm-hmm. Barlow. And then he shows up floating outside Danny's, his brother's window. And oh, that yeah. is a scary scene because the clicking of his long green blackish fingernails on the window pane as he wants his brother to come in and he doesn't say a word nope. unlike, unlike the later vampires later on in the in the in the story he just taps yeah. his fingernails on the pane and keeps floating back and forth with this this yeah. freaky yeah. smile so billy what do you think <laughs> about that scene yeah that scene's really creepy you were saying like there's not a lot of jump scares in this movie i think there's maybe like three you know like you, the, the whole part with larry crockett running out of the house in his underwear a little bit of one there with you know barlow's hand and the part and in the then, jail the jail with ned yeah, that's a and that's the second half coming up yeah there's that one but there's not a whole lot but there are a couple of scenes that are just you know they they don't jump on you you know they don't they're not real quick and like surprising but they're super creepy and that's one of them right there and then after you do your synopsis for the second half i'll talk about another one that scared the crap out of me but for a, a little bit different reason than that but it's you know you'll you of all people will totally get this you'll you'll get this angle excellent so, uh, i'm looking I can't forward wait to, to tell you about that but oh it's so good like i said such a good setup for the whirlwind that is part two yeah excellent yeah yeah that's a good way to put part two because everything uh, now we've we've seen the village fraying you know we've seen things degenerating in the first half but then like you mentioned in the second half, everything just goes to hell in a handcart. Oh, it's a complete yeah. maelstrom of evil and of chaos, and nobody knows what's going on, and the town is untethering. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's where we leave it off, right, Billy? Because now that Ralphie's um, vampirized his brother, his brother's in the hospital, and he visits him a second time, and that's when the nurse finds him dead the very next morning. Danny Glick, yep. dead on a hospital bed. And that's the end of part two, uh, part one, the first part mm-hmm. of the TV movie. Yeah, like I said, that's that's gonna get me to come back if I'm watching this. You know, <laughs> I'm definitely thinking like, oh crap, what's gonna happen next? And like I said, you like these characters, you like you know Ben and you like Susan and you know the dad. Um, 
you know, Dr. Norton. You, you like these characters and like Mark Petrie. Like you said, we don't know a lot about him yet. Like he hasn't really come into the prominent role he'll be in in the second half. But, you know, he's a monster kid. And who doesn't love a monster kid, man? Like you got kids room. Like, wow. Can you imagine all the memorabilia yeah. he had? Woo. We were monster kids, Billy. That's why we can appreciate this kid from our uh-huh. childhoods you know i can see why he's i mean basically what this says is what this movie uh, tells me the message it, it carries is that monster kids are you know uh, a necessity in <laughs> if dire evil <laughs> enters your town you need them to be the hero to step up to to vanquish this evil monster kids are the heroes <laughs> They know what to do when the crap hits the fan. I'll tell exactly. you that. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> we're going to see that for real. <laughs> definitely, definitely. All right. So we'll head into the second part of the movie. This is my turn, right, Billy, to handle the mm-hmm. synopsis. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. Okay. Leaving off from the first part where we found Danny Glick dead in his bed. Part two mm-hmm. starts where um, the town is uh, mourning and there's a funeral for Danny and Ralphie Glick both because Ralphie is presumed missing and dead. And Danny has just died. So Marjorie Glick, his mom, she cannot stand it. At the funeral, she faints. And then, um, uh, obviously, the whole town attended the funeral, funeral, except for Susan Norton, who's out uh, having an interview in Boston. And then, um, you know, let me just find it here. Sorry, Billy. I'll cut out this part. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my, my oh, notes good. just, just uh, <laughs> ran away from me here. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, I have a lot of notes. I just skipped ahead here. Sorry, I'll cut this part out when we get to it. Okay, okay, here we go. Um, wait a minute. Sorry, I just accidentally touched my notes and it scrolled a whole page up. Uh-oh. Apologies, let me just find it here. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, here we go. All right. Um, ben and Mark end up seeing each other for the first time at the funeral. And as the mourners leave, Mike Ryerson fills in Danny's grave. And as he does so, the sun fades behind the clouds and he starts to enter a type of trance. Um, compelled by what is ever in, whatever is emanating from Danny Glick's coffin, Mike leaps down onto the coffin itself in the grave and uh, he opens the coffin and it reveals Danny's body, eyes wide open and glowing. And mm. as Mike looks up at the sky, Danny sits up and bites him on the neck, vampirizing him as well. So by my count, Billy, this is the third vampire so far that we've got, you know, um, oh, yeah. among the townsfolk. Uh, fourth, if you count Larry Crockett, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben discusses the nature of evil with Jason Burke as they have dinner. And uh, he feels as if the Marston house is the reason for all the evil that um, has happened to the town in the past and that there might be a chance that the evil has returned. Of course, Jason being a teacher and a bit of a science aficionado himself, he's skeptical of uh, Ben's theory. Uh, But then Mike Ryerson, the very Mike Ryerson who filled in uh, Danny's grave, interrupts their conversation. He behaves erratically, he falls on the table as if he was drunk, but it soon turns out that they realize he's ill and dazed. And Jason Burke, the teacher, offers to allow him to sleep over at his place for the night until he can recover. In the middle of the night, over at the Petrie house, Mark is visited by Danny Glick, who also floats Ralphie style outside his window, tapping on the window pane. Um, And unlike Ralphie, Danny actually speaks. 
and he asks Mark, open the window, Mark, open the window. He commands it. So this is already very sinister. Mark is in a trance as well. He's hypnotized, but he manages to break free by force of will from Danny's spell and grabs a crucifix from his diorama set and brandishes it to protect himself. Danny recoils and fades away and uh, the commotion wakes Mark's parents who then um, comes into the room but Mark assures them he's fine. Then over at Jason Burke's house where Mike Ryerson is now sleeping off whatever ails him, um, Jason hears a strange sound from the room where he put up Mike and um, he phones Eva's boarding, boarding house and Eva calls Ben to the room and Jason begs Ben to come over because something strange is happening and Ben must, above all, bring a crucifix. Now Ben, he's an atheist, so he doesn't really believe in all of this, but he asks Eva if he can borrow a crucifix from her and she says yes. And then he heads over to Jason's place and Jason says that something strange happened. He heard some strange noises and a voice that was not the voice of Mike Ryerson in the room. So Ben and, my, and Jason end up going into Mike's room and they find Mike dead, you know, on the bed. They take his pulse. They can feel no life within him. So they end up calling the police and Mike's transported to the morgue. Now, um, when Ben returns to Eva Miller's house after this debacle over at Jason's house, Ned Tebbets is waiting for him and ambushes him in his room, uh, beating him up in a jealous rage. This is obviously because he sees Ben as the person who stole his girlfriend, Susan, from him. Um, Ned beats up Ben so badly that he's taken to jail. And that night, Jason, Jason Burke, the teacher, is alone in his house when he hears someone in the guest room once again. As he opens the door, carrying a crucifix, he sees Mike Ryerson sitting in a rocking chair, rocking back and forth, saying the sinister words, Look at me, teacher look at me and then jason in a panic brandishes the crucifix at him and immediately mike recoils leaps out of the window but before doing so warns him that the master will get his revenge so eventually um uh, because jason burke's an old guy he feels um, something wrong in his chest he clutches his hand to his chest and it turns out he's having a heart attack um, he falls to the ground and manages to crawl into his bedroom where presumably he reaches the telephone and makes the call to the hospital to an ambulance to to help him because later we see that the scene shifts to Ben in fact coming to the hospital and she tells him then that Jason Burke the teacher is has been admitted to the hospital he's had a heart attack additionally to this several bodies have disappeared and Mrs. Glick Daniel Ralphie's mother is one of them she had died earlier in the day from anemia, which is um, extreme blood loss. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when Ben finally sets out his theory that vampires are real and that they're in the town. And then uh, Ben gets Bill Norton, the doctor, Susan's dad, to accompany him to the coroner's office where they view Marjorie Glick's body. And, um, you know, before they leave, Ben tells Susan that vampires are real and she reacts with disbelief. She doesn't want to believe him. Um, about her father, Bill, who's a doctor, he also refuses to accept it at this point in time. But Ben manages to convince him to join him in the morgue. And then as they wait, um, Marjorie Glick starts showing signs of life. Ben is alone with her in the room at, the, at that time. And as she wakes up, Ben calls out 
to uh, Bill Norton, the doctor, to come in and there's a scuffle between her and Ben and the doctor. Eventually, the cross wins the day when she vanishes in a, well, basically tel teleports out of the room. And um, then they head over with the stunt Bill Norton uh, back to the house where they're then discussing what to do next. Bill has now become a believer and uh, he's mm -hmm. firmly on, in ben camp's, uh, Ben's camp now. Um, now Susan has followed Ben's instructions to you know prepare her house against the onset of vampires and this has been gleaned from the researches of the teacher Jason Burke he in fact has been researching vampires and he told Ben and uh, what and Bill Norton what to do in order to prevent the incursion of vampires into your house and then um, um, meanwhile Ned Tebbets is in his cell uh, where he's um, visited by a sinister cloaked figure and this is one of the jump scares we mentioned earlier, right, Billy? Ooh. Ned yeah. um, is immediately vampirized by Barlow, who for some reason chose him. <laughs> Barlow chose to visit the cell. And um, after that, you know, Mark is uh, at his home with his parents. And um, Ben and Jason have managed to draft the Catholic priest, um, uh, Father Callahan, to go over there <laughs> and to discuss what is happening with Mark and the Petries because, um, you know, obviously Father Callahan knows that, you know, um, you know, Mark has been one of the children who has been traumatized. So he's going over there to talk to his family. And then at that very time, we have one of the most horrific scenes in the movie where something, uh, first the lights go out and then something shatters back, breaks the window, comes into the kitchen. And then it turns out to be Barlow visiting the Petries with Father mm -hmm. Callahan right there in the room. And then Straker shows up as well, blocking any uh, means of escape. And uh, the Petries end up dying when Barlow smashes their heads together, <laughs> which is <laughs> horrific, right in front of Mark, their son. And then it's Father Callahan standing alone against the powers of darkness as he brandishes his cross. But in order to save the life of Mark, he has to make a sinister deal to lay down his, uh, his cross and meet Barlow faith against faith. So after that, um, you know, uh, Straker um, uh, laughs as Mark Petrie flees the house, right, Billy? And then uh -huh. the next day, Ben, Ben Mears now tries to round up help to fight Barlow, uh, but he finds that the town is now in a state of disarray because even Constable Gillespie is abandoning the town and he can find, you know, Susan nowhere, you know, um, Susan was supposed to leave town with her mother, as instructed by her father and Ben, but instead she uh, goes to the Marston house to see something for herself. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, she's entranced by the idea that this might all just be a fiction on the, the part of her dad and Ben. And she sees Mark Petrie lurking outside. He's going to, to enter the house to see if he can, you know, get revenge for his parents during the daylight because he knows about vampires. And then Susan, uh -huh. you know, she accosts him and says, what are you doing in here, Mark? Please, we have to leave. And Straker then shows up and he subdues Mark and menaces Susan and then basically kidnaps her as well and takes her down to the basement to meet his master. Uh -huh. Now, left alone, Mark has been tied up, but he manages to escape his bonds because it seems like he's a little bit of a young Houdini. And, um, <laughs> you know, he joins up with Ben and Bill Norton, who's now uh, also come to the house to see if they can stop and root out the evil which they know has been concentrated in the Marston house and then Mark accompanies them 
into the house and they um, then encounter Straker and Straker murders um, Dr. Bill Norton in a horrific way by, by impaling him on deer antlers stuck onto the wall. And mm. uh, after that, Ben shoots Straker with his gun and he dies. And then in the coffin, uh, in the basement, they find the coffin of the master vampire Barlow. But um, the stairs have been removed, so Mark takes a nasty tumble. And um, that does not deter them, though. They keep going, and um, inside the root cellar, they manage to unearth the coffin and pull it out into the semi-daylight of the, the basement. And as they open it, they, you know, they see the master vampire Barlow inside. But while this is happening, the vampires that were sleeping with Barlow inside the root cellar slowly start to awaken and start crawling towards the entrance, intent on saving their master. Uh, ben brandishes the hammer and he starts staking Barlow in a horrific scene that seems to take ages with the monsters looming behind Mark stealthily creeping up on him. But finally they manage to, after a huge amount of effort, uh, stake the master vampire Bar Barlow and close the, the cellar door, preventing the egress of the vampires within. Ben and Mark then pour gasoline on the Marston house and set it ablaze, burning the vampires inside, hoping that the flames will carry into the town itself and exterminate the other vampires there. Then the final segment of the film, Billy, is similar to the opening scene that you discussed with Mark and Ben in Mexico, in Guatemala, presumably still on the run from the vampires, as we saw in the first part of the movie. A glowing bottle of holy water signals them that they're that some vampires are close, vampires seeking revenge for the death of their master at the hands of Ben and Mark. And it turns out Ben and Mark were the only survivors in the entire town of this vampire menace. But instead of running this time, Ben decides to stay and see things through. He enters the room of their hacienda, presumably, to find Susan <laughs> lying on the bed <clears throat> with her eyes closed. She whispers to them that they were so difficult to find. And when she opens her eyes, we see that she is a vampire. And Ben knows this already, and when he leans down to kiss her, he ends up impaling her with a wooden stake. And from there, Mark and Ben move on, presumably still pursued by the rest of the vampires from Salem's Lot. And that concludes the second part of the TV movie, Billy. Wow. wow. <clears throat> I didn't want to leave out any details, so I went into a lot of detail there. In mm. hindsight, it was difficult because my notes were so copious. I kept having to find the place <laughs> that I left off. So, what what a what a second half, right, Billy? What did you think about this part? It was great. I mean, if you watch this movie as the whole, but you think of it as in two parts, where a split is, you know, there's like a bit of a like the screen kind of goes dark, like not like it happens in a movie, but like happens on TV shows for like a commercial break. And there's like a couple seconds longer in the middle there. But when you look at it in two parts, they're almost, you know, exactly equal in length. But the second part seems to go so much faster because of all the cool action that happens, you know. And it's like it doesn't like detract from my love of the movie at all. But, man, does it really seem like it goes fast. But I can just tell you one thing, man. Susan is one of the hottest vampiresses I've ever seen. Yeah, she looks even well. Uh, this is Ooh. the case in um, in many vampire movies where once someone becomes vampirized, they become, you know, ultra hot. But in Susan's case, this yeah. is definitely 
you know, prominently wow. displayed. She looks much better than she used to look. More wild. You know, she looked too prim and proper in her human guise. Yeah. You know, but yeah. in her vampire guise, she looks more, you know, like um, lascivious and, um, you know, more just plain sexy, right? So, yeah, it's oh, a huge yeah. difference. You're right, Billy. Uh, and that's a shame that Ben, you know, had to kill her there at the very end. I would gladly have, you know, taken up vampirism at that point in time. Yep, yep. <laughs> I would have said, go ahead, give me the bite. That's it, Susan. No, this is it, man. I'm tired of running. Just just do what you yeah. came for. And then we can live happily ever after, literally forever after. <laughs> but yeah, that, hey, why not? <laughs> yeah, that's not the way it happens. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, Billy, that these vampires are so intent on hunting down the killers of their master. Yeah. You know, they're, they're probably also doing it for survival because they might think that, okay, these two people know who we are. But it seems like the vampires have no problem tracking them down. It's almost as mm -hmm. if they've been, you know, tainted by the blood of Barlow when they staked him, and the vampires can now smell them wherever they go. Yeah, yeah. they have a vampire radar or something. But yeah. yeah, so think about that for a minute. They were all the way up in the United States, as far north as you can go, the, the continental United States, yeah. in Maine. Yeah. And somehow, Mark, I mean, obviously, Mark and Ben, they can make their way to Guatemala, you know, in a few days, um, even by car what in a week so but i'm thinking to myself how many people did susan snack on between maine and guatemala think about that and <laughs> how, how many, many victims did she have exactly how many people did they vampirize because it seems that these vampires are not shy in uh, you know by making you know more vampires like in some stories believe you have vampires yeah. refusing to make more vampires because they don't want competition so they end up you know after draining someone dry of blood they end up you know cutting off their heads or something or burning the bodies or even yeah. like in some vampire tales draining the body completely dry causes death not vampirism right but here they you know presumably are vampirizing the entire country it could be a vampire apocalypse at this point in time we don't know right yeah. it, i mean it's, it's radically different from the book in the at this very late stage but i still like this ending this is almost like the ending to you know the movie the mist starring Thomas Jane, you know, um, the Stephen King adaptation of his short story, The Mist, where the ending of the movie is better than the ending of the novel. And it's true that Stephen King does not stick well to the landings. You know, he, he doesn't always end his novels well. It's more like the journey is what appeals to the readers, not really the ending. The ending inevitably disappoints in, in many of his books. Now, the Salem's Lot ending was kind of like that. It didn't have a conclusive ending. You didn't get closure when you finished reading the novel. But in this one, it's similar. You don't really get closure, but you do get that between Ben and Susan's relationship, which was central to the book, uh, and to, uh, sorry, central to the movie. Um, this relationship that they had, right, Billy? So the fact that he ends up murdering oh, Susan yeah. at the end, who was hunting him, that, that sort of gives the movie closure for me. It sort of ends the story. But of course, the, the story kind of picks up in Salem's Lot 2. But, you know, we're not going to discuss that here. We're going to solely look at this as a standalone product <laughs> and yeah. not go into a repeat of that because the second one's not that good. I, I doubt you even have the intention of ever discussing that that, that Salem's Lot 2. <laughs> yeah, right, probably Billy? not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of the scenes, though, I want to highlight for sure. You mentioned, you know, the scene at the burial when Danny bites Mike Ryerson when he kind of gets into that hypnotic trance and then later he says it was because he heard singing which you can't hear any singing at all so it was some kind of hypnotic thing that Danny was doing that made him jump down in there and 
open the casket and he got bit there. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then definitely again, Mike Ryerson after he died, but then comes back and he's on that rocking chair, rocking back and forth in Jason Burke's spare room. And Jason comes in and there's this moment or two, like, what is it? Maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds where Mike, you know, vampire Mike doesn't even seem to notice he's in the room. He just keeps rocking back and forth on this rocking chair. And then all of a sudden he looks up at him with these glowing eyes and hisses at him. And some people might think I'm a bad parent, but just listen, give me some slack. So I'm like a maniac about horror movies and stuff like that. So I've had my kids watching them from, you know, a pretty, a pretty young age. So that scene freaked my daughter out when she was little. Oh my <laughs> God. How little Billy, together. how little are we talking here? Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, un- under 10 for sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So then I would I would harass the crap out of her every once in a while. I'd just go I'd, – I'd either put that on my phone and play that clip from YouTube where he's like, look at me, teacher. And she'd oh be like, ah! Goodness. And she'd go no. <laughs> That can probably give her a fear of, of you know um, you know, people in the class addressing the teacher as simply teacher. <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah, when her uh, – psychiatrist bill comes in i'll be paying that i guess oh my god <laughs> but, yeah she'll she'll yeah. send you the bill i'm sure this is all my dad's fault no man that's crazy i didn't know you did that billy you've you've taken on a whole new light in my you know uh-huh. thoughts of you now <laughs> my estimation uh-huh. of you has changed but no 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 i agree you know get them while they're young billy get them while they're young uh-huh. <laughs> but you know yep. that scene is great it's very scary because it's sort of that oh mike is you know, he's not racing against the sun, but he kind of in the beginning feels that he has to get this done, this 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 burial. He has to bury this coffin before the sun sets. And then, in fact, yeah. it looks like he's going to do that. But then some force compels him to to stop, you know, covering the coffin with dirt and leap into the grave. And that's when yeah. he he's he's made hypnotically to open this coffin by Danny Glick, who then immediately sits up and just bites him. I, that was a jump scare in itself, actually, even though you saw it coming. Mm-hmm. It, it re- yeah. really scared me because it, they've got such an inhuman way of rising from their graves or even just getting into a sitting posture, you know, from a sleeping yeah. posture into a sitting posture. It's, it's done in such an inhuman, robotic-like way that you're scared, you know, that scares the crap out of you, <laughs> the way that's filmed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for real. So well, well done, Toby Hooper, on, you know, scaring us with these little short vignettes of people becoming vampires. Yeah, I mean, and then I, the other one, there's the jail scene, too, that you mentioned with Ned. That was another one that scared the crap out of my daughter, too. She was like, oh, my gosh. Like, she she literally did jump the first time she saw that because that is really scary because that is the first time you see Barlow, you know, in his full uh, scary glory. Yeah, the you know, jump. He, he comes yeah. in there. Oh, my gosh, into the cell. Oh, the jump scare crazy. there is his face, you know, Billy, because yeah. it is. It's uh, a close-up. Yeah, it's a close-up of his face, and it is a scary-looking inhuman face. It's it's way scarier than Nosferatu, Max Schreck's makeup, and and the way they made him look. I mean, at least in his face, you saw some semblance of humanity in the face of the Nosferatu German film in in the vampire's face. But here, there's none of that. There's just um, you know, he he's a monster, plain and simple. He's a predator. There's no yeah. humanity in his face. There's nothing, not even a twisted semblance of humanity. It's just a straightforward monster. And the makeup effects, you know, obviously are to blame for that. Or not to blame. It's, 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 should be praised for that. <laughs> be lauded, yeah. Oh, yeah. but yeah, that's, I mean, that scene, he's, it shows 
Ned in like the cot in the jail cell, and then you just see this like mist or fog start coming into the the room, and then <laughs> he kind of looks around like he thinks he's dreaming, and then all you see in front of the jail cell door is a hand, Barlow's hand, like wave in front of the lock. And it just like Snaps magically open. opens. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what is going on here? And then the next thing you know, like I said, Ned kind of like rubs his eyes like, what's going on here? Am I dreaming? And then wham, the, the camera is right in Barlow's face, you know, like making you think it's like right in Ned's face, which it's not. It's a little bit back, but it's close enough that, you know, mm. when you have that guy bearing down on you, even from a few feet away, you're going to be frozen in like fear and terror. It's a great, great moment. That's right. I mean, at one point in time, it seems that the vampires, you know, their their powers are all over the place, really. That's why you can't really predict what they're going to do next, right, Billy? And I kind of like that. It's a, it's a chaotic yeah, mess yeah. of vampire lore here because um, even mm-hmm. though all, all the research that, you know, um, uh, the teacher's done, you know, um, Burke, it doesn't matter because there's some things that, that, mm-hmm. that don't, that that don't ring true for instance you know um uh burke banishes mike ryerson from his house by using the crucifix but also saying that he rescinds his invitation right which is like traditional vampire lore you must invite them in for them to you know be able to um you know enter your home and then you know uh, suck you dry now it doesn't seem to be the case with more powerful vampires like barlow because barlow can just jump through the window as I'm not saying it was the shape of a bat, but it was definitely not human shape when it came through that small no, kitchen yeah. window in the Glick's house. Yeah. Uh, sorry, in the in the Petrie's house, mm-hmm. it was definitely something else. Uh, and then suddenly, it, it was a little thing lying on the ground, covered in a black cloak, and then it grew into this gigantic Barlow, who immediately just killed, you know, Mark's parents by bashing their heads together. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, that part it seems that the, you know the that he's got powers the other vampires don't have. You know. Barlow, obviously, uh-huh. because he's the master yep. vampire, but also, you know, people like just a newly minted vampire, like uh, Marjorie Glick, <laughs> Danny's mother, who wakes up on the slab in the morgue, she seems to be able to teleport, you know, out of there. She yeah. doesn't even fade into a puff of smoke. She literally just vanishes from sight, that teleports out of there to escape the being hemmed in by by Bill Norton and, um, you know, by Ben Mears. Yeah. Yeah, I never understood that part of the movie. I didn't understand. Was it was she supposed to have been like vaporized because they're standing there with the cross on her and he does touch her with it. And then also it looks like the sun is starting to come up, too. But that doesn't make sense, because then in the next scene, Ben and Dr. Norton are in a car and it's like pitch dark in the middle of the night. Yeah, so I exactly. never kind of understood. Yeah. I kind of think like might, might be like a little bit of a. A shortcoming there with this movie, which you know, it's a it's a little tiny nitpick. So mm, mm, there's mm. nothing really to get excited about there. Yeah. But that's that's one part that never really made a whole lot of sense to me. But other than that, though, yeah, nothing to complain about here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not also not like you said, I'm not gonna nitpick because I like the fact that you know at the end even their knowledge of vampires break down. You know, it's like yeah. they, it, it, it's probably the way it will happen in real life too, Billy, because everything right. that's yeah. been written down has been hearsay or rumor or you know superstition so you can't really rely on the books it was the the go-to you know a strategy for um the group of vampire hunters to research their prey but the the research is all probably spurious you know what i mean there's it's not accurate so you know that makes sense so i'm not gonna you know um also you know go too down too hard on that but billy no i think i mean this is a, a movie that maintains the level of fear 
from the very mm. beginning until the very end, and that makes it a highly successful horror movie in my estimation. Yeah, I mean, there was two other things I wanted to quick say about it, too. I mean, well, first of all, I think Christopher Lee is the best Dracula there's ever been and ever will be, but the scariest vampire ever is Barlow. It To me... <laughs> He's the scariest vampire ever. Like well, when they do that close up on him and everything. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, let's, he is scary. Let's unpack that, Billy. No, I'm. I tend to agree with you there. He is the scariest vampire. Why is that? Because he never talks. He never speaks. Yeah. He. Yeah. It's it's almost as if he views human communication beneath him. I mean, he Straker is his mouthpiece. You know, his servant Straker, who also turns out to have some form of supernatural power that Barlow has gifted him because he takes I, numerous... Yeah, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. <laughs> well, it's true that some vampiric servants are, you know, imbued with some power by their masters. They almost become like revenants or, or the, the, you know, they become abdead or, you know, they're not completely a vampire. They're, they're caught between life and death. And the reason for that is so that they could have the power to protect their master during the daylight. They could still move around during the day. You know, but they they have um, a bit of supernatural strength on their side. So Straker, though, he's not invulnerable because Ben eventually kills him with, what, six gunshots? But it takes six shots to bring him down. And he Uh easily picks up, before that, he easily easily picks up um, Dr. Bill Norton Uh, uh, by, 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 you know, just picks him up by his lapels and just, like, impales him on this, um, you know, these uh, deer antlers. So, mm-hmm. and what do you think about the interior of the Marston house? I mean, damn, that place, it looks like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, it's rotting. The wood is rotting. It's covered with, with slime. Everything's filthy. You know, that place is, is a prime for a horror setting, even during the daylight when, when, the, when yeah. they went in there. So, Billy, I agree with you. He's one of the scariest vampires, Barlow, because of that inhuman quality where he doesn't speak and just the fact that he's got blue-grayish skin with these luminous eyes and these massive fangs, which is unlike normal yeah. vampire fangs. These the, these things are his, it's right in the front of his his uh, mouth, uh, stretching mm-hmm. down well below his, his lower lip from top mm-hmm. to bottom. And um, oh, yeah. it's, it's definitely a scary thing. I, I would agree with you. He's probably one of the scariest vampires caught on film. Yeah, he's gotta be. Um, oh, and one of the, th- there's, something i want to mention too when we're at the part where ben and jason burke are at the restaurant you know and ben is really starting to get worked up about the house and salem's lot and thinking there's something going on yet not necessarily vampires yet but you know he wasn't quite convinced you know in the movie yet because he really hadn't seen maybe evidence of it or seen obviously a vampire yet but he's talking about the house and this is some good writing here. And he says to Jason Burke that, you know, do you think, you know, a house can be evil, like an evil house attracts evil people. And then of course, Jason looks at him and says, well, if an evil house attracts evil people, then, and he looks at Ben, like, why are you so interested in it? You know? And I thought that was a very good bit of writing. Yeah. 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 I mean, right throughout the novel and the movie, Ben is portrayed as an incorruptible, good guy you know because he's had this tragedy in his in his past where his first wife his only wife that he was married to died in a motorcycle accident so 
um, you know, he's he he's a tragic kind of hero, a tragic figure who who goes through life with sorrows because he sees himself as being responsible for her death. So because of that, he's trying to atone for it. So he's he's basically incorruptible. He's trying to be do the right things, trying to be a good guy. But um, you know, I think you're right. It's like moth to the flame kind of situation, right, Billy? I think it's because of the evil that he thinks he perpetrated. Yeah. You know, um, by killing his wife accidentally, you know, manslaughter. But still, it's because of that evil that he might be attracted to the house, not because he he is actively evil. You know what I mean? It's because he thinks he has right. done evil. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so that's probably the reason. But yeah, that was a good good scene because Matt, you know, made a good point there. Or Jason, I should say. I keep calling him Matt because Jason. he's um, Matt Burke in the novel. Jason Burke, yeah. yeah. So that teacher yeah. had some really good insights. And then he was laid low by a heart attack. Damn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, which is a very realistic bit of the, the movie there, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it also happens in the novel, but it doesn't um, lead to his death. You know what I mean? At least not initially. Yeah. He's still alive and well for a couple of, of weeks in the in the novel where they consult him in his hospital room. In fact, the hospital room of, of Matt Burke, which is Jason Burke in the movie, but the hospital room turns out to be the central headquarters of the vampire hunters <laughs> in the novel, <laughs> you know, where they go to his hospital room and discuss their strategy and so forth. So, you know, in terms of um, the insightfulness of of Jason Burke in this movie, it's it's that's a very poignant, like you say, scene there where he, he remarks on that. Ben does have some skeletons in his past. Yeah, so Billy, yeah. no, there's the, the, uh, you said you wanted to mention another scene. another. Yeah, so it doesn't freak me out now, but when I was a kid, so I had seen at least a few horror films before this, definitely vampire films, and all of them that I had seen before this one you know, you could be, it didn't matter <clears throat> if you were a person of faith or not. You could be, you know, Bozo the Clown. And if you showed a cross to a vampire, that was like, that could make them go away, stop what they were doing, stop menacing you. You know, they would fear that. But man, that part where <laughs> Father Callahan tries to confront Barlow and because basically he doesn't have any faith, real faith or enough to back up, you know, coming after Barlow with that cross Barlow just grabs it and rips it out of his hand and throws it on the ground that freaked me out when I was a little kid mm, yeah that was a scary scene because that showed you everything Ooh. you had up, up until that point uh, had come to believe was um, bullshit <laughs> you know it wasn't yeah it turned it all on its head yeah yeah, yeah. and that uh, similar thing to that happens in the novel uh, very similar it's almost uh, scene by scene accurate but um, there are extenuating circumstances that I'll mention during our discussion about the differences between the novel and the movie. But yeah, that scene really freaked me out too, Billy, because it shows you that, no, that this symbol of uh, faith is not enough. You actually have to back it up with real faith. Mm -hmm. And um, as it turns out in the movie, though, presumably Father Callahan did have real faith. But, um, uh, you know, faith was not enough because with because the, the deal was that he had to throw away his cross and meet mm -hmm. Barlow faith against faith, right, Billy? And Father Callahan lost. He was too lost. afraid to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a coward, but also, so it, it might be argued that he didn't have enough faith, or it might be argued that, you know, um, his faith didn't matter at the end because um, he had already made the deal, which which already then yeah. um, 
circumvented his faith, <laughs> you know, yeah. just by making a deal with the devil. Yeah, which... I kind of felt like maybe he was just too he because he was like so because he made a deal and then didn't make good on the deal. You know, I kind of feel like it showed because they presented him kind of like a little bit of a goofball. You know, they only had a couple of scenes with him, but he just acted like, you know, like he, he made some comments earlier, like when Ben and Susan went to visit him to try to see, like convince him something was going wrong in the town. You know, there's mm. all this chaos going on and he acted like, well, you know, it's no big deal. Like he's kind of a knucklehead. I think like he didn't want to actually see what was going on in the town. Yeah. You know, he kind of turned a blind eye to it and almost said to them like that the church doesn't, uh, you know, concern themselves with matters like, you know, the occult and things like that anymore. So yeah, I thought, exactly, yeah, that, yeah. Maybe that's part of what led to him getting, <laughs> getting killed. But, um, I mean, don't ever see him killed, but you know, he got killed. He was face to face with Barlow there. So, you know, he's dead. Yeah, he's definitely <laughs> dead. He was, you know, vampirized, um, as well. I'm thinking because the vampires hardly mm-hmm. ever kill people in this, um, movie you know they 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 basically yeah. obviously they kill everybody but they they turn them into vampires that seems to be the the be all and end all of the reason why barlow is there right billy he wants yeah. to turn this town oh, yeah. into a nest of vampires mm-hmm. now um that that i i can understand why he wants to do that because every single vampire that uh, is born in the town is under his direct control so this sort of in, uh, expands yeah. his power so that leaves me wondering what happened to his previous endeavors. Like, how did they, did they all come to naught? That were they all defeated by some heroes? Or, you know, in Europe, presumably people have a, especially in Eastern Europe, they have a more superstitious outlook on life still when it comes to this. So that's probably why it kept failing because those folks knew the weaknesses. They knew the way the vampire hunting, you know, mm-hmm. um, necessities. <laughs> that might be why they moved to the new world you know, Barlow and Straker and why they set up shop in a small town. But, you know, it's yeah. it's definitely that that seems to be their intent to just kill people and turn them into vampires. There's no other greater, you know, they don't want to take over the world or anything. But, you know, like I say, the ending, Billy leaves it sort of up, up for interpretation because this is six months oh, yeah. after the events that transpired. Two years. Yeah, uh, it could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the then, yes, it's two years. Two years, you're right. Okay, in the novel, it's not that long, but yeah, two years. Okay. And then, in during that two years, the vampires might have spread from Salem's Lot, you know, and oh, yeah. and and basically they've been initiating V wars in the United States. So you know, they they could be yeah. running away from an encroaching apocalypse here, or they could just be running away from a select group of vampires who's been targeting them, and the rest of the main nest is still in in Salem's Lot. You know what I mean? Could so, be, yeah. yeah, but I like this ending more than the ending in the novel because, like I said, Billy, there's this this moment between Ben and Susan, you know, where he mm-hmm. sort of has to stake the woman he loves and that sort of ends the movie. Um, in the novel, he also staked her, but it happened way earlier and it wasn't used as a, a way to, you know, to wrap up the film, to wrap up the plot. And I, I think they did right. it elegantly by by using Susan as one of the vampires to hunt down her lover, you know, for her yeah. master who's now dead. So great way to end the film. And um, a, it's also a very uh, prominent and poignant scene when he realizes that this time they couldn't run because he sensed, Ben sometime, somehow sensed that this time it was Susan who came after him. So rather than running again, 
um, he and Mark yeah. decided to confront whoever had come after them. And that turned out to be the right decision mm. because it was Susan. Oh, yeah. So very disturbing, Billy. Very disturbing, but very, you know, satisfying in its ending. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, it's like I said, it's, there's really nothing from beginning to middle to end in this film that is any kind of a turnoff whatsoever. They really they hit a home run with this one. So for sure. All right, Herman, I know you are a huge Stephen King fan and you've read a ton, if not all of his books, multiple times, some of them. <laughs> so why don't you uh, lay some knowledge on me here and uh, let me know what some of the major differences were between the book and the movie. Mm -hmm. I know we talked about a couple of them there, but not not a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of had to talk about a couple there just to, to for, you know, to tease this bit of the um, show. But, um, you know, we, we definitely didn't get to the, the main you know, part of it that's the, the, the main difference between the movie and the novel. But but we, we covered the bit that said why the movie was successful independently of the novel, right, right, Billy? And the reason for that is the, the, the editing or the, 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 the way they decided to change certain scenes and characters. Actually, in the movie, they sort of um, meshed or, you know, merged a lot of characters into each other in order to get rid of the huge cast in the novel, if you know what I mean. Because the novel is so thick and so huge, it's like 700 pages or more. And uh, because of that, there's a, a, a huge cast of characters in the town. And uh, the appeal of the novel is um, these little insights into their lives and their daily routines and how, you know, this change in the town, this, this disaster that unfolds impacts them. But you don't have that much in the movie. You have that a little bit with Larry Crockett and Boom Boom Bonnie and her husband, Cully. That's one of the few <laughs> scenes. But, um, and then, you know, I'd say the rest of the scenes have all been completely, um, you know, ignored by the, the, the screenwriters because um, they were about the town and not about the main plot, which is, you know, the main characters hunting or confronting this vampire menace. So I'll, I'll get to it in, in order. First off, Billy, you have to realize Stephen King wrote this novel because he wanted to portray small town America but he also wanted to um, have an old old world horror uh, impinging on small town America and seeing how that unfolds. Um, mm -hmm. So he didn't have a coherent plot, you know, from A to Z when he started writing this novel. He basically let allowed the novel to um, evolve on its own as he was writing it, as he was writing about small town America, with the vague notion that he wanted a Dracula figure in there and uh, a, a haunted house. Yeah. And I think those two horror tropes worked brilliantly in the novel and in fact in the movie although the the house is never shown as haunted in the movie right Billy that's one of the differences in the novel itself yeah. the house is haunted by Hubie Marston the the builder and owner of the house who murdered children he was a child murderer and uh, he killed himself and his wife in the house and that caused their their ghosts to linger and stay in the house. And, and that's a major part of why Barlow is attracted to the house because he can only be content in a place of evil, of great evil as his home. You know, that sort of uh, makes him restful or fuels his power. So that's why yeah. he purchased the house. But it, in the novel, he also, he was a correspondent of U.B. Marston in the 1930s. Now, Billy, let's start off with the, the biggest difference between the novel and the movie is the character of Barlow. In the novel, Barlow is much like Count Dracula. You know, he is well-spoken. 
He's, um, he has interactions, uh, dialogues, verbal interactions with many characters in the novel. And mm -hmm. um, he even writes a very uh, erudite and detailed letter at one point in time to Ben and to Mark and to the, the doctor, who is not, in fact, Susan's father. That's another difference. We'll get to that. Yeah. And the, the letter is elegant and, uh, you know, it's uh, verbose. And he's definitely a man of great intelligence. In fact, he, he's a chess player. He, he likens himself to a chess player and that they would be unable to outmaneuver him because he's got thousands of years of experience of strategy and war and chess, whereas they've had, you know, uh, they're, they're newcomers to this game. So, you know, the character of Barlow is the main difference. He's not portrayed as a monstrous figure at all. In fact, he, could, he, he shows up as an old man you know, in the beginning, much like Dracula in the novel shows up as an older man. And then eventually, as he started to prey upon the town, he becomes younger, more powerful, you know, more, more appealing, more dynamic. Um, but it's true, he sort of stays away from his antique shop, much like he does in the, in the movie, he doesn't really take part in the daily lives of the townsfolk. But where he does enter into their lives is by meeting them individually, obviously mostly at night, <laughs> always at night, and then having conversations with them before he vampirizes them. So he's a very compelling character in the novel. In the movie, he's yeah. only a monster who shows right. up and, and kills people, yeah. which which makes it scarier in many ways, you know, especially yeah. you know on film. But I'm saying in the novel, though, he's, he's definitely a, a villainous character on par with, let's say, someone like um, Count Dracula himself or, or Hitler yeah. even, you know? Mm -hmm. In fact, he yeah. hates he he hates you know lots of things. Um, in the novel, he's he's a bigot. He's a and I I won't call him a racist, but he definitely looks down upon you know the old world of Europe. He says the blood has been diluted, you know, by gypsies and in in one monologue, for instance, and how he hates that old tainted blood. He wants new blood, you know. That's why he came to the new world. You know, the taste of Americans fascinate him, and that's why you know so. Very compelling character. That's the main difference. And then, Billy, the other uh, big difference is the plot itself. As it plays out, you know, Susan is vampirized early on in the novel. Not not very early. I'd say midway or, or, or a little bit past the, the midway mark, the halfway mark. And then, you know, um, they are they when they first arrive at because uh, the companions figure out that it's the, the evil is centralized in the Marston house. So they get together um, more than halfway through the novel and they enter the house and then what is left to them is not Barlow himself. Barlow has relocated his coffin to Ava Miller's boarding house's root cellar but he yeah. left them a present and what he left them uh, is that letter that I spoke about and also he left them Susan Norton fully vampirized and mm -hmm. they had to stake her to death. So that was his present to them. The agony that Ben had to go through of staking the woman he loves, which is a part of the chess game he was playing with him. You know what I mean, Billy? So Susan did not oh, show yeah. up at the very end uh, as one of the people hunting them, the, the vampires hunting them. She was a victim early on, but at their own hands because she had been vampirized by Barlow. Another difference was Mark himself uh, took out Straker. You know, he escaped from his bonds and he's that's a very big difference, Billy. He's much more resourceful than he is in the movie. In the movie, he's pretty good because he's the first one to resist the vampires with the crucifix when 
Danny Glick comes to his to his um, window, and he's also the, the he, he's managed to escape from the bonds that Straker put him in. But in the book itself, Mark is like a genius. You know, he's a kid who stands out in school. Everybody knows he's different because he's he's strange, but he's uh, highly intelligent and very resourceful. And um, he's got a lot of knowledge of vampires, even more so than Matt, than Matt Burke, uh, Jason Burke in the movie. Um, you know, so he is uh, more of a character. In the movie, he's just someone who manages to survive until the end by sheer luck, if you know yeah. what I mean. And the, the fact that he's a good escape artist. <laughs> <laughs> but in the movie, he kills Straker with, um, I think it was a pew or a broken piece of the banister that he managed to pry loose from the yeah. decaying Marston house and he bludgeons him to death. So, um, yeah, so basically, well, he doesn't actually bludgeon him to death. Now that I recall, he bludgeons him into unconsciousness. And then because Straker had failed Barlow, Barlow kills Straker by by crucifying him, stringing him up in the house, Hellraiser, <laughs> pinhead Hellraiser style, you know. <laughs> so it's it's really horrific. And then another thing is, Billy, that, that was very scary to me in the novel, which they touched upon in the in the movie but not really and this is a big difference is in order to prepare the town for the coming of this evil uh straker had to go through these rituals he had to i'm not going to use the word sanctify the town but but let's say he had to prepare the town in a satanic or hellish way for yeah. the evil so the first uh, thing he did was to kill M mike ryerson's dog and hang it up on the cemetery in a satanic ritual to 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 sort of banish the good from the town cemetery you know what i mean that's the first thing he had to do so this dog was displayed also kind of like crucified um in a satanic way on the <laughs> on the the posts <laughs> of the cemetery which was horrible right and that affected yeah. mike ryerson a lot you know he loved this dog he loved this dog to death yeah. in the novel and then the second thing was ralphie glick that was kidnapped by straker in the forest he was he was a human sacrifice you know he was never vamp he was never he never became um you know like he wasn't like not just vampirized yeah. as a snack he was a, a human sacrifice to yeah. the dark lord who was also the master of barlow who presumably is satan but is probably not we don't know you know um so you know there's this this sense of ritual that part was not really in the movie itself and then another thing that's different is um you know, like I say, uh, Susan Norton's mother, she hated uh, Ben f at first sight. So she actively worked against them during the first part of the novel to derail their relationship. And she's the one who sort of set Ned Tebbets on the course of, of vengeance against Ben, beating him up, uh, which happened yeah. in the parking lot and not in his very in his room. Because in the movie, it seems Ava Miller's boarding house has no security. Anybody can come into... into <laughs> Uh, Ben's room whenever they want, whether they want to spy on his novel or whether they want to beat him up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the movie, they kind of make the excuse that he's a plumber and he was there yeah. to fix a toilet or a sink or something exactly. like that. Exactly. So yeah. he could. It yeah, yeah. pretty shoddy. Yeah, it wasn't actually illogical. You know, in the movie, it, it was, it seemed that they, you know, he had egress to wherever he wanted to go. But, you know, mm -hmm. Billy, um, uh, these differences, these little differences don't really matter. The big difference is Barlow. You know, the character of Barlow, he was more mm -hmm. of a character in the novel. 
And the, the second biggest difference, I would say, is the plot, you know, um, which I'm going to get to now. The, 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 a very big difference in the movie is how the plot played out in the book and in the movie. In the movie, they after they stake Barlow, they immediately burn the house and they hope that the fire will spread to the rest of the town, um, which is very <laughs> that's that's not good adventuring right as we know from from <laughs> movies know. and stuff that's just like okay we, we, we killed the vampire now we're on the run because we can't take out the rest <laughs> of the vampires they could have stayed around you know really uh, until they could have hidden themselves in 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 other yeah. towns and then come back you know during the daylight mm-hmm. or something i don't know anyway so um then as the plot in the book played itself out is they staked barlow and after, you know, obviously staking Susan, they, they killed Barlow. Then they did flee the town, but not because, you know, there were vampires pursuing them. It was because the authorities were looking for them, because the authorities were already on Ben's case because the cop had flagged him as one of the reasons why there's so many murders in the town, you know. And um, even though there was no con- conclusive proof, he and Mark were the only survivors who who then made a run for it. So everybody immediately assumed their guilt, you know, after these strange yeah. events in the town. And then the town was abandoned for six months or, or more, you know, but, but it was still filled with vampires. And then as Mark and, um, you know, uh, Ben traveled around the country evading the authorities, which was never made explicitly clear. There was never like an APB out on them or anything, you know what I mean, Billy? But they definitely couldn't return to their former lives because they would have had to answer questions and possibly been jailed or because oh, yeah. or, or put in mental institutions if they offered up their, <laughs> their real beliefs. So because they were traveling around the country, they had to find odd jobs here and there. And they kept track of what was happening in, in Maine around the towns of Salem's Lot by looking at newspapers. And um, Mm -hmm. the stories from the newspapers are a major uh, part of the first, um, I'd say the first uh, quarter of the novel, because that's how you see all these strange events unfolding around Salem's Lot, like farmers being killed, their their cows being slaughtered and drained of blood, uh, you know, hitchhikers dying around the town, you know, people whose cars break down, gone missing. Stuff like that, you know. So um, they 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 keep a track of what's happening through this town, and then eventually they decide enough's enough. You know, they're going to go back and and do what they should have done right after they killed Barlow, and then they burn the the entire town to the ground at the end of the novel, which is yeah. which is fairly easy to do because um, uh, I think seventy or eighty years before the events of Salem Lot, Lot there was a massive fire that mm-hmm. that burned through that part of fictional Maine. You know, oh, yeah. and it devastated the town. So the town is, you know, uh, a focal point for major fires. And that is why they were um, capable of burning the entire town down at the very end. Uh, so that that's the major difference between the plot of the movie and the book. They weren't hunted by the vampires for killing the master, which I kind of like more, actually, in the movie. The fact that these vampires are out for revenge and that's why they're on the run. And um, mm-hmm. the end of the the novel, they definitely do sort of solve the problem, although not 100%. There's still some vampires lingering somewhere, but most of the vampires perished in that, that massive blaze they set. And at the end of the movie, you're not sure if that even happened. You, it might, like I say, be the end of the world where, where half of North America has now been vampirized. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I like that a, ambiguity. A trail from Maine to 
Guatemala for sure. Yeah, Guatemala, <laughs> yeah, it might be the, the last bastion of humanity at this point in time, holding out against the encroaching vampire men, as we don't know. I like that sort of apocalyptic, you know, yeah. ambiguity to the whole the movie. And then believe I mean, the... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you can't... I mean, if you think about it too hard, you, you can't really because think about it. So if a vampire is like, yes, I'm going to turn everybody into a vampire. Uh, okay, then how are you going to live if there are no more humans to feed on, you dummy? Exactly. So they can't vampirize everybody, but let's say two-thirds of the planet is vampires. That's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that damn scary. So, I mean, that's been explored in fiction, and it, it eventually it doesn't work out, right, Billy? You kind of, when you're a vampire, you have to keep it low-key, you know, yeah. at the risk of, of depleting your food, food source and at the risk of being exterminated. So, yeah. So we don't know, but, you know, it's fun to speculate, right, about... Oh, what yeah. that ending meant but and then Billy the third and most well for me personally most important difference between the novel and the movie is the novel the character of Father Callahan had a much bigger role in the novel and later on in the greater Stephen King universe of books you know he, he featured prominently as a character in Stephen King's Dark Tower horror fantasy series um, later okay. in, in King's career um, know that. Father Callahan was a very important character in the the novel. He was more fleshed out. He had his own story arc. He was an alcoholic, oh, typical stereotypical Irish priest. <laughs> he was an alcoholic. He um, <laughs> he struggled with faith. You know, he's also possibly, um, in fact, definitely later on, but in these early um, uh, books that we encounter him in, he's uh, possibly um, homosexual. You know he's gay, so he um, he's struggling with that, and then um, you know he has lost his faith faith because of that, and that's why Barlow was able to defeat him. But Barlow, in fact, did not defeat kill him and vampirize him as presumably happened in the film. Barlow may ha gave him the ultimate insult or indignity, where he defeated Father Callahan in the kitchen of the the Petrie's house. But then, rather than kill him, he forced Callahan to drink his blood by opening up a vein in his neck and letting the blood just spurt onto Callahan's face and forcing his mouth mouth open to drink it, right? That's horrific, right, Billy? And then, rather than turning him into a vampire, this caused... Because it seems that in the novel and in the movie, you have to be bitten. That's how the infection passes, right? The, the curse of vampirism passes. It's not just yeah. you drinking the vampire's blood and then you'll become a vampire because in the novel it didn't happen Callahan did not become a vampire from that he was tainted forever he was rendered impure he was rendered unholy by the fact that he drank uh, vampiric blood and then when he tried to retreat to the church after viewing this horrific scene in the Petrie's house he couldn't enter the church blue flame leapt from the gates of the church as he tried to to gain sanctuary there, right, Billy? So he was forever barred from from yeah. the Lord, <laughs> who he now knew was real, who, who yeah. would presumably have, have cured him, but um, now could never do that. So he was tainted forever. And then he ended up leaving the town much like the sheriff did because he couldn't face the evil and he couldn't, you know, gain succor from his church. Yeah, fear, basically, cowardice. Yeah, yeah. So he yeah. was all of that in the novel, like he was shown to be in the, the brief scene in the movie. But he had a much greater, 
you know, part in the novel. And he was a more compelling character because you went into his alcoholism, his his atheism, his encroaching atheism, his reason for being what he is, and his disdain for the people in the town and all their problems. So, yeah, those are the major differences, Billy. I, I'd say that before we end this part, I'd also say that the, 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 the novel had more... Uh, stories related to the townsfolk themselves there were many many characters yeah. i mean there was one part which i would have loved to have in the movie but i can understand why they couldn't have in included it an abusive bus driver whom all the kids at salem slot elementary hated but they also feared him because he was physically abusive to them and um, their parents never knew about it and he was also psychologically abusive to them being a bully and insulting them he was taken out by a, a group of vampirized school kids in his bus at one point in the novel in an, in an amazing <laughs> act of revenge from the kids from the school who are now all little vampires. They that was a scary scene. And then awesome. a, another scene involved this um, old, uh, he was a great character, this old hunchback who ran the city, uh, the, the town dump who who was a he was a misanthropist he hated all people right and he struck up a relationship with barlow before he was vampirized because barlow it sort of enjoyed his company for some reason this guy used to shoot rats for fun you know he set fires in the dump and then when the rats ran from from whatever part he had set the fire in he would snipe them you know with a rifle and uh, and with an assortment of guns that he had, a Magnum forty four, you know, all of these guns, and he would like, he would enjoy how these rats exploded and what what a certain caliber of bullet would do to a certain rat, you know. So he was this very interesting character, this horrible old ugly hunchbacked <laughs> man, and um, you know Barlow sort of took a shine to him. Barlow would show up in the dump and then philosophize, <laughs> talk about <laughs> the old world and how he hated humanity and his concept of blood and you know now when you think about it, dr frankenstein in the movie sometimes seemed to have you know a, a hunchbacked servant you know um uh, helping him you know with his experiments uh, now this guy i'm not saying he was barlow's renfield you know this hunchback i mean that was definitely mm -hmm. straker but this but this hunchback guy from the dump he really served that purpose a little bit you know <laughs> giving a sympathetic <laughs> ear to this vampire and uh, a couple of That's other great. scenes too like larry crockett never had an affair with his secretary those were totally different characters <laughs> in the in the in the that was the the i think oh. it was the the mailman <laughs> the mailman who was a young kid with this ex-cheerleader who used to be hot, you know, in the town, and this this um, ex-jock who was the town football player in his in his in his youth, the, the best football player, now being relegated to this, uh, you know, this this life of just boredom, and the ex-cheerleader yeah. being bored, and she had a flirtatious fling with this this mail carrier or something, you know, and then the <laughs> husband great. doing the same to the mail carrier, showing up with a shotgun, forcing him to eat the shotgun, and then the kid just soiling his pants. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry Crockett, he had nothing at all to do with that scene. But I'm glad they, they put sort of put that into the movie where they melded yeah. these two characters, Larry Crockett and the 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 kid, the mailman. <laughs> they put yeah. them together. Oh man, it was great. And then um, you know, a little little changes like that, Billy. So I'm not gonna go into every single thing they yeah. changed, but the names are different and obviously some of the characters have been, you know, um, compressed. 
mm-hmm. the three main differences being the plot and uh, Barlow and then Father, Father Callahan, I would say. Yeah, that's like, I mean, I think they did a pretty good job, as good a job as that you could adapting, you know, like you said, a huge novel into basically three hours, you know, a three hour long movie. Um, combining some of the characters or omitting some of them, you know, that's just part of it. But like you said, they did a really, really good job. Now that part with the crazy bus driver, we were saying, you know, you said in the beginning about how Stephen King used different things to, you know, inspire him to write some of his books. Well, that whole scene that you just described to me, you know, the, the kids getting the revenge on the abusive bus driver, that's straight out of an EC comic right there. You know that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh. Exactly. Which was a huge inspiration for King in writing this novel, Dracula and his youth as a reader of EC comics. You know, the novel Dracula and his, his love of EC comics inspired this. Particularly, Billy, if I can mention this, an old EC comics tale where, I mean, this is, um, if you read up on Stephen King and you, you come across his um, memoir of the horror genre called Dance Macabre, which he wrote, uh, I think, in the early 80s. So now it's dated in terms of the stuff he referenced then. But, you know, he did write a foreword to that, which updates it kind of. But, you know, if you read Dance Macabre, you read about his love of the old EC comics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was inspired to write Salem's Lot based off of the fact that he loved... Um, these vampire tales in, you know, EC Comics, which Americanized vampires. If you know what I mean by that, vampires in in Europe, they were counts and royalty and old school vampires. But the vampires in the EC tales, they were businessmen. You know, they were like folks running a town or, you know, even a barkeeper running a saloon or something Mm -hmm. for vampires where the spigots does not have beer flowing out of them it has blood or something like that you know so basically a, a combination of uh, old world vampire with the american sensibility of capitalism is what attracted yeah. him to writing you know something like salem's lot so you're right ec comics that, that was a major uh, force of inspiration for for king yeah which is cool like as you said you know it's when you're trying to you know, have inspiration to write books and then have books then adapted into movies. You know, we talked about earlier, too, how the, the, the screenwriter, you know, I'm sure he called on some things, too, that he wanted to make changes because he didn't think they would translate really well onto film, especially one on TV. You know, there were just certain things in the novel that happened that there's really no way of doing that on television that, you know, the censors would have been okay with that, which, and I mean, I'm still shocked at a couple of the things, like, you said about Bill Norton getting killed with the uh, Straker impaling him on those antlers. That's pretty oh. brutal. I mean, you don't see blood fly or anything like that, but that's still pretty brutal for television. Dude, I'm so glad you mentioned that right now because I completely forgot to mention something incredibly disturbing from the novel. Um, can I quickly interject that? Because yeah, yeah, this yeah. is something I should have mentioned. This is one of the biggest differences. Okay, the character of Bill Norton in the, the novel... He's just Susan's dad in the novel. He, he, he loves Ben, but he's vampirized very early on. And he doesn't, he's not a doctor, for instance. You know, I think he's retired in the novel or something like that. But mm-hmm. th- there's a character in the, um, in the novel who is uh, Matt Burke's pri- uh, kind of like GP. He's his, his private doctor, sort of, because Matt Burke has had, you know, health issues for a while. So he, he goes to one of his former's, former students, a doctor called Jimmy Cody. And Jimmy mm-hmm. Cody ends up 
becoming what Bill Norton became later in the movie. He's the main, he's the doctor character, the guy who helps them to hunt down the vampires. Now, yeah. Billy, he's killed in a horrific fashion in the novel because rather than being already like Bill Norton, horrifically impaled upon deer antlers, listen to this, right? Um, when they enter the bar, the Barlow residence the first time, Marston House, and they mm-hmm. eventually find Susan and they have to stake her. Um, before that, you know, um, Jimmy Cody went to the house uh, with the help of, of, of Ben and of Mark. And they tried to then already uh, see what's going on then. And then they headed into the cellar, but the cellar stairs have been cut away, just like in the, the movie where Mark takes yeah. a fall, mm-hmm. right? Except oh, yeah. this time around, it's Jimmy Cody and the floor has been littered with broken panes of glass that has oh. been has been erected to be they've been uh, uh, stabbed through pieces of wood right billy so yeah. you know the glass is is, is oh. upright because the the end of it is in, embedded in pieces of wood laid all across the floor and then two sharp ends yeah. at each end the, with one sharp end embedded <laughs> into the wood the other one sticking up so a bed of glass shards that are sticking up and Jimmy Cody falls from the, you know, um, uh, from the lip of the, the entrance into these, uh, into this bed of glass and he's impaled and dies. Oh, so it's a trap, yeah, that, that Straker and Barlow set there for them. Yeah, It, it was a nasty death. But I, I'm saying this Bill Norton death is damn close, you know, to that as well. So that's another example. Yeah, that's of, yeah two characters they fuse together is Susan's dad, Bill Norton, and the character of the doctor, Jimmy Cody. Um, yeah, so a very, very crazy scene in the novel, but just as great a scene as the doctor's death in the movie. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I love it, though. Like you said, that's the novel has its really good points, and so does the film, but it's a, it's a good translation. You don't see a lot of translations from a novel to a film, especially a TV film of this caliber. This is really high quality stuff. Like don't let, if you want to watch this movie, if you haven't yet, don't let the fact that it was a TV movie uh, scare you away uh, from seeing this because you don't think it's going to be high enough quality or scary or good. It is like, believe me, it's listen to us here. Trust us on this one. If you haven't seen this one, get a uh, Friday night, Saturday night, whatever, uh, get a bowl of popcorn, put the lights down, (laughs) just flip the TV on, no other lights on in the room. And watch this one here. And since it's a TV movie too, you can it's on the ready that you can watch it anywhere. You know, I mean, I I, I think it's public domain because it was a television movie. I'm not 100 percent sure about that, but I think it is because you can find it anywhere. It's on the ready, uh, every site on the planet to just watch it at. Or you know, I bought the DVD. Uh, I don't think I think it's out of print. I might have paid like 20 bucks for it or 25 bucks for it or something like that on eBay a few years ago, but I think it's out of print. But, uh, you know, if somebody puts it out on uh, DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, grab it if you can, because uh, it's definitely worth a couple bucks for sure. Oh, definitely. No, I'm re- I'm watch- I watched it on the DVD as well. I've owned it since, I think, 2006 or 2007. Uh, you know, uh, so it's not it doesn't have any special features or anything, right, Billy? But, you know, I don't care. You can mm-hmm. check online for that kind of thing or on YouTube. It's worth owning. Yeah. It's it's also if you if you don't want to own it you know with all the streaming services Shutter and so forth you can get it easily, 
uh, and you can mm-hmm. have it for a rewatch on your queue. It's just uh, it bears rewatching as well, right, Billy? Because this movie's deep. It's yeah. it's it's got so many layers. Um, definitely one of my favorite horror movies in my top ten. And um, I'm so glad you asked me to talk about this because I've been wanting to talk about this movie for what decades. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's just this is one of the classics that you really, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. And yeah, getting to talk to uh, you about it here has been a, a thrill, man. I love it. You and I love talking horror movies, horror comics, weird comics, all sorts of crazy stuff. So, you know, we'll uh, continue down that path together. But. All right, man, so let's uh, take a quick break, and then we'll come back and wrap it up and say our goodbyes and get out of here. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, hey, Wait, you like movies? Yeah, I love to talk, film, discuss, to critique. You want to see a film with me? Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. So we're going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. All right, everybody, we're back to wrap things up. Uh, thank you, Herman, uh, big time for coming on and talking about this movie. Uh, we're going to have a, a ton more fun talking more movies, more comics in the future. A lot of uh, uh, pretty big announcements on the way coming up, too. I will say at this point, at some point, I will actually talk about uh, some uh, comics, uh, probably horror-related on this show as well. That's still going to happen sometime in the future, but... Like I said earlier, you know, you and I talk comics so much, you know, on our other shows to get the chance to talk about movies is a lot of fun, too. And there's a lot of movies we still want to talk about. You know, we already talked about a Hammer film, an Amicus film, now this one. So uh, definitely in the future, I want to go down those roads with more Hammer and Amicus and other crazy films, you know, horror and sci-fi and all that crazy stuff, too. So uh, definitely uh, stay tuned. But uh, where can everybody uh, find you if they want to seek you out there, Herman? Yeah, great. Well, I'm on Twitter mostly, um, at Dark Longbox, and then our other podcast uh, is at Into Weird. So I believe if the listeners want to uh, listen to some podcasts about horror comics, they can check out The Longbox of Darkness, uh, which is uh, related to my Twitter account, at Dark Longbox. That's where Misty and I, my co-host, talk about horror comics all across the board. And then listeners can also check out uh, the show that you and I helm, Into the Weird which is all about the wacky madness and crazy kookiness of the Marvel Bronze Age of Comics, prominently featuring our favorite character, Dr. Stephen Strange. And that is related to the Twitter account I mentioned, at Into Weird. 
and that's basically where you can have me folks um, we've also got two websites www.longboxofdarkness.com and www.sinkintotheweird if listeners want to check out some blog articles and that's that's basically it for me cool yeah man like you said we have a lot of fun on into the weird you and misty on longbox of darkness um, i'll have all this uh, info in the show notes too, uh, links to everything and then uh, like i said if you're uh, of the mind to uh, check out some uh, early 1980s uh, dc comics uh, all-star squadron in particular by roy thomas check out uh, a world on fire an all-star squadron podcast starring you and i we have a lot of fun with that going to be you know ramping up our coverage here in the near future too to be uh getting a little more content out a little faster as well. So everybody can look forward to that. I know there's a lot of people that have chimed in on that. So yeah, you're going to, you're going to get what you asked for. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. I'm looking forward to that, Billy. Thanks again, man. It's been a pleasure. Yes. And thank you for uh, coming on, man. It's a, it's always uh, fun for you and I to talk uh, on mic, off mic, horror, weirdness. It's, it's uh, always a good time. Oh yeah. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.